Sam, welcome back to Austin, Texas. Thank you. I didn't really get a chance to visit with you too much last time you were in. I think I was busy trying to help support the conference, you know, the DCAC conference. But um, for those of our listeners that are either dialing in or listening on a podcast or watching on YouTube, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to these people and let them know who you are? Definitely. So Sam Huckabee, I work for uh, Vantage Data Centers, actually from a, a data center specific company. It's the first I ever worked for. Hmm. Um, had a little bit of history dabbling in data centers, first one actually being back in Nashville. And it was for, uh, um, I actually worked for a concrete contractor and we were doing the concrete structure for the data center. And it was back then people didn't necessarily know like what a data center was. Sure. It, was it was for a bank. And so it was, uh, yeah, just kind of, we were like, ah, this building is built like a, you know, it was just stout. And so it was like extremely overbuilt and we didn't necessarily understand. We were just concrete guys. So, um, yeah, it's been, uh, so coming on, you know, coming on to Vantage and kind of diving in fully into the data center world has been, has been pretty interesting for me. And to kind of see the, the way the industry has unfolded even over the past four years to, you know, to where it was at when I got into it, to where it's at today is it's, you know, we all know we've seen this like vertical climb of demand and sure. and need. And, and so how do you continue to adapt and be agile through kind of through that process has been, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, even in, during that course of time, I started at Vantage as, as a director leading up one of our California campuses. And now I'm a senior VP leading our North America team, which has just been very humbling, but also uh, just a, a lot of fun. And so how do you, you know, I'm sure like anybody else is thinking, how do you scale that? How do you continue to keep the growth and keep up with the demand, but also keeping quality and, and value uh, to our customers and to our investors and, you know, and also to our partners who we know we can't do our business without them. Sure. So. That's exciting. I, I definitely want to go back to that part of the story with how and when you got the Vantage. But I also think that some of the people listening would find a lot of value taking it as far back as we could go. So are you from Tennessee originally? So uh, born in Arkansas. Oof. My family moved around a lot. What part of Arkansas? Northwest. Okay. So uh, hometown, hometown of Walmart. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. So Northwest Arkansas actually is gorgeous. It's the Ozarks. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful place. And has changed obviously very significantly, a lot of Walmart money, you know, there's some great museums now there and it's a, yeah, just a completely different place. Um, but I went to high school and college out in Tennessee. So high school outside of Chattanooga and then spent a couple of years at university of Tennessee, Chattanooga. And then I wrapped up at, at middle Tennessee state and, uh, middle Tennessee state has a program called concrete industry management, which I had never heard of. Most people give me that. Yeah, I've like, never, never heard of it. That never heard of it. And it was it was actually started, and I, it's one of the reasons I love it. It was started by the industry. And it, they basically went to the university and says, hey, we need people who can come out of college understanding concrete and the concrete industry. And if you think about any of our structures, any of our buildings, every building, your house, everything sure. has concrete. Everything, right? And it might be a little bit, might be a lot, depending on how your structure is. And so- the, the thing that actually sold me was they were like, yeah, there's a hundred percent, hundred percent job placement. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, sold. Um, and growing up relatively poor, uh, 
it was like, I went to college, not for the experience. I went to the college to get a job. Like that was my yeah. soul. Like I just wanted to be able to get a job. And so they also did a lot of internships. I worked for like a geotechnical company doing concrete testing, got ACI certified for concrete testing and all that stuff. And so um, did that in the summertime and then worked uh, for charter construction out of Nashville uh, doing concrete work. And so I did that during the day and then took my classes at night. And yeah, I got my mat or my uh, undergrad in concrete industry management with a minor in business. Um, was kind of uh, ready to get out of Tennessee and move to California. Uh, Let me ask you, like, you went to your what? What made you move to Chattanooga? Your parents' job, career shift, or what? What industry were they in? So, um, yeah, my my parent. We moved around a lot. I went to like eighteen different schools. Um, as a kid. And so I, and I have five older brothers, so a relatively big family, there's a pretty good gap. So it was kind of like a period of time. Uh, and I'm the baby. Uh, and there's, so there's six boys. Um, and there's, there's a good gap between the older three and the younger three. Mm -hmm. And so, um, we moved out from born in Arkansas, moved around a little bit then, and then we moved out to California. Um, and then when we moved from California to Tennessee, my three older brothers stayed in California. Go apart. Uh, in um, uh, Fallbrook. So Is that like north the, or south? Or? It's it's between San Diego and LA. Um, okay, Fallbrook. Like in Orange County then? or Yeah, it's south of Orange County. Okay. Yeah, up and from the coast. Uh, so not far from like Oceanside. Okay. Uh, and so, but we moved out and that's when I kind of joined or started school, did kindergarten then out in Tennessee and then we moved around a lot, even then, like Missouri and Arkansas, then back to Tennessee and did a little really short stint in Georgia and uh, moved around. So my dad kind of had two major careers. One was building custom homes. In the 80s, as everybody knows, that market, the whole housing market just went to hell. Sure. And then he went to go uh, start driving a truck. So the majority of my life, up until I was 16, he was driving a truck um, at 16 in Chattanooga. Uh, he stopped driving a truck and he started doing, you know, small construction projects. Well, that's when I started working. So when you went to college then, did you think, hey, I'm going to get in the family business and I'm going to get into construction? It was, I, I kind of always wanted to do commercial construction. So uh, I wasn't a big fan of residential. Okay. Uh, I wanted to be on bigger projects and go off and do. Why was things. that? I don't know. I, I think it was more because they're longer, um, you know, bigger teams. Uh, bigger value of a program, being yep. a part of something bigger, bigger. Gotcha. Yep. So when you were going to college originally, you spent, uh, you went to Chattanooga State first or that's where you finished? Yeah, University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. I went there for two years, kind of just did all my general sure. ed stuff and then went to, and then it was like, okay, I got to figure out what I want to do. There was really nothing in construction at, at UTC. And so looking around, it was like, well, Middle Tennessee has this program um, for, they had a, they actually have a construction management program, but it was about residential. And so I met with that group. And then I also met with the CIM, the Concrete Industry Management Program. Interesting. And it was like 100% job place and sold. Let's go do that. So when they tell you those things, they tell you what the disparity is between what the person with the construction management degree gets versus the concrete person, or was there any? There, no, not, not necessarily. I mean, the, the, the program for the construction management just wasn't as big of a program at that school at the time. So, so you didn't have a declared major when you were at UTC. It wasn't until you transferred. I, to... I actually did. It was industrial engineering, and oh, wow. uh, I had a professor talk to me about how he was ecstatic about designing a handle on a on a toilet. Um, and at that point in time, I was realizing that I was in the wrong um, 
Didn't want to be an engineer. Didn't want to be building toilets. Yeah. yeah. I can I kinda, understand. I kind of realized. I was like, yeah, this isn't for me. I need something more hands-on. Um, so you transferred. Uh, how far is that? I mean, is that another side of the state? It's so Chattanooga's south uh, by Georgia and then, you know, Nashville center. It's Chattanooga's kind of center. You just head up, about, I think it's what, two, two and a half hours or so. North of Nashville. No, so for Chattanooga and then two and a half hours. So Memphis, uh, or not Memphis, but Murfreesboro is like 40 minutes south of Nashville. Gotcha. So you transfer there and you decide like, hey, man, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to dig in deep on this construct, on this, on this concrete thing. And then with that, like, how did you get to the point where, like, what do you do when you graduate with, you know, concrete degree? So uh, I was really lucky. I had a, um, I got an internship at a geotechnical company where I was going around dry, you know, testing concrete. And that was my first time onto like a commercial job site, kind of really getting into it and stuff. And it was, and so that's kind of how I got into it. And I kind of learned the first thing about, uh, which I think is what I try to do, which is to treat, uh, like treat everybody the same and treat them well. And so there was a, a guy that I worked with who was kind of really well known in the Nashville area. Um, and uh, but all he his whole career was around testing concrete, doing rebar inspections, that type of stuff. It was kind of his his bread and butter. Um, well, he was a single dad, and so but when you're a con and you're on these massive jobs and you're a big concrete guy, what you end up uh, you know having to do is you got to do a pour at two in the morning, and then you got to be there all day to continue, oh, yeah. continue with inspections, or you got to they're starting to pour at midnight. And so they had some big concrete pour going on and he said, hey, can you um, come out and support me? I said, yeah. So I went out and supported him and then he was talking, you know, we just ended up talking and I told him, I said, hey, listen, like, I know you got to pick up your kids or you got to do this or do that. Don't even bother calling dispatch. Just call me up and I'll come do your mid, like, I was young, right? I was 20. I was like, I'll come and do your midnight pours. Not a big deal. Like, I don't have a, you know, a family, family. to go home to, yeah. so don't worry about it. I'll, I'll make it happen for you. And, uh. And I did, you know, did a good job, did what he needed to do. And then he could also then take care of his family, but also, you know, take care of his kids, bring them to school, whatever. Yeah, you're a hero. Yeah. Well, and then I got an opportunity through some mutual friends uh, through Charter Construction, which is a- Yeah, Charter or Charger? Charter. Okay. They're they're con yeah, they're out of Nashville. They're a concrete, you know- they Are they national or are they focused? They're focused. Got and it. anyway, I go in and uh, do an interview. I actually knew- uh, so the owners, I knew one of the daughters of the owners and, you know, I walk in and Turner Talley, who's the president there now, he goes, you know, I appreciate that, you know, her, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything to me. Sure. Um, and then I mentioned Paul, who's the guy that I worked with over at, uh, at, uh, that geotech company. And he goes, and that kind of just changed everything. Cause he had validation that uh, was the credibility. Yeah. Because every, because everybody in the concrete world knew Paul in Nashville because he was, top-notch inspector, right? Reasonable, fair, that, sure. whole, that whole bit. And so they called Paul and that kind of, and that, that got me the internship and then job with, with charter construction. So did you go to work there when you graduated college? Right. Actually, while I was still doing Oh, okay. So that's where I kind of switched. And so I did the geotech for a summer. And then when school started, I went to go work for them. And then they were awesome. They let me work around school, know, work around school. Because again, for me, college was about getting a job. Sure. And so to be able to do that application of working in construction uh, while also learning about it at school was like, 
So were you going to school during the day or working during the day and going to school at night? It was a bit of a mix of both. So like I would do school on Tuesdays and Thursdays. If it was if I couldn't get my classes that I needed at night, it was on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then I'd work Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. But you know, there was the old Motorola, you know, two way cell phones and sure. all that fun stuff. So I was yeah. You're so working all the time. In, yeah, in between classes I was working you know, however I needed to do to make sure our project kept on moving forward. Were you working with that? I mean, as a student, were you technically full time or? Were... Yeah, I was full time. I was doing 20. You know, yeah. I mean, I was doing, I had no life other than working in school. Okay. So did you have a girlfriend at that time or just working? Yeah. I had a, uh, uh, an ex-wife at the time. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> All right. I gotcha. Now we're getting to know each other. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it was one of the reasons we moved, I moved up to Nashville, got married, moved up to Nashville. She wanted to go do occupational therapy and then, um, yeah, things didn't work out. Did she go to school with you at first? She went to a different school. Yeah. Uh, in, in Tennessee, out of Nashville. So she found a school that worked and I found a school that worked. We got married, moved up there. And then about a year and a half. Did later, you know that person from like high school or something? Yeah. We oh, knew okay. each other prom king and queen in high Ooh, school. Yeah. That's what I, I always wonder what happens to those people. Yeah. So, they get divorced. <laughs> nice. I'm not sure all of them do, but, um, <laughs> all right. So you, you go to school and you're kind of playing grown up cause you're married. Yeah. You're still in college working full-time, but also studying full-time. And you got lucky to find a place that had some credibility and and a guy that you were just a good soldier behind validated you, which helped block and tackle and get you in. Do you still talk to that person or you keep in touch? No. Is he still in the game, you think? I don't know. Mm. It's, been, it's been a while. Well, would that have been like one of your first mentors in the industry? It was more about, I, I wouldn't necessarily say he was my first mentor. I would probably say it was more because- he was he was on his job side. I was on mine. I would go and help, go and just help and support him, and that was good enough for me to because kind of goes back to he's a person. He's trying to take care of his family. He's yeah. trying to do the good, the right thing, and I have an opportunity to help him out. Um, and so, and then he was like, "Hey, if you ever needed you know a reference," and I mentioned to him, "Hey, I'm going to interview a charter," and he goes, "Well, you know, let them know." Hey, oh, I, I got you. You know, and, it, and so there wasn't necessarily. Uh, you know, a big mentorship there. I would say that my first mentorship was actually working at Charter, um, like, uh, so awesome company, like Turner Tally, like just awesome individual, like even walked with me in life going through my divorce, which was sure. rough while still working full time, still going to school full time. Um, I would say he was, you know, like when I look back and I look at the list of people who actually have, do have a list of the list of people who've like made major impacts in my life. He's one of them. Oh, that's um, cool. Now I don't necessarily stay. I think guys are probably a bit different. We're awesome like that. Uh, where, but I could probably, I feel like I could probably pick up exactly. with him just like that. No you problem. call him today, it'd be time to have a beer, no harm, no foul, right? Yep. That's the best part about us. No long goodbyes. I do like that. I have a bunch of guys that I've served with in the military that every now and then if I pop into them. You know, it's, we pick right back up where we left off. So when you were going to school, did you have any like unusual ambition and you're like, look, I'm going to be in construction. I want to one day own my own construction company in concrete or you just were like, I just needed to have a job. Yeah. I mean, cause when you, when you, uh, grow up in trailer parks and hotels and stuff, you, I was like, I just need stability. To, yeah. I just kind of got to take care of myself and earn a paycheck and I got gotcha. you, you know, and then, and do well for my family. Then did you have uh, all your older brothers? I guess you have five older brothers. Did any of them fall into construction as well? So one of them did. He, uh, Joe, 
the one right above me, he actually owns his own um, construction company in the Denver area doing residential siding repair, bathroom remodels, that type of stuff. Do you see him all the time now? Or? Yeah. Yeah. So we actually, when we moved to Denver a year ago, we moved a half a mile from his place. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And he's the next older one. So you guys like, are the, well, how, how much? Different? Two years, two years between us. I got you. And did he want to study that? And okay. He, just he, he actually went trace. to school for uh, music and then got to music theory and it kicked his a little confusing. Yeah, it kicked his tail. And so uh, um, he dropped out, didn't finish, but he went to work for Apple uh, for a long time working in their stores, became a manager, um, and then kind of worked his way up at the Apple world and then was like, I need to do something different and then started up his own. Good you know, for he, him. he worked with me uh, and my dad when we did, because I worked with my dad for three or four years doing- uh, Like when- so high school, uh, high, okay. during, during high school, and then during my first two years of college when I was in Chattanooga. What I, were you doing with him? What were you guys building? Residential? Decks, sheds, re-roofs. Those are perfect. I mean, like having that skill set for your own personal advantage. Yeah, we, we I built a little ADU. It's additional dwelling units, what they call them in California, in my backyard out in, in Livermore when I was there. And okay. so, like, I, I built it myself. <laughs> so, that there was a lot of advantages that now when you do that in California, they make you get like a permit. Of oh, yeah. I did the drawings, got permits. They didn't uh, make, did you have to have like a GC license or anything? Like that? No, yeah. because it was my own personal property, luckily. How cool is that? All right. So, you, um, you graduate college, you end up getting a job before you graduate. And how long did you stay at uh, Charter? I actually, when I graduated is when I was like, I got to get out of, you know, going through a divorce and stuff. I kind of feel like I needed to, none of all my family had left Tennessee at that time. They all had. So you were the last one in Tennessee. Now, how old were you? I would have been 21, 22. So 21, 22, graduating school and saying, I'm done. And now I'm going to move to California. I got it. So got a job out in California. I hated the job. Where at in California? It was in Livermore. So the first place you made it to after Tennessee is Livermore. Yep. And what made you pick that slot? Got a, uh, so again, 100% job placement coming out of the program. So okay. what they did, and I, I suspect they still do it, is that they actually uh, did like job fairs or they would have some of the larger like Semex and some of these larger companies come in and, and they do dinners. And Ooh. they actually talk about their company and then you get a, you know, students get a mingle with oh, okay. recruiters and the people who are working with the company and, you know, you can get, and so you kind of work your way through that. Like um, a little mini hiring conference type of thing? Yeah. And they kind of really tried to do it up nice with a good dinner and because yeah. they were looking for people who, for students, like who understood, because part of the thing to get out of that program is you had to have uh, your ACI certification for concrete testing. And What's ACI, ACI certification? Uh, American Concrete Institute. Okay. So it's like, if you want to like do a slump test and make cylinders and all that stuff, you have to be certified to do that. Okay. And so you had to, so, which is uncommon in the, in any universities to be able to walk out having a, a, a certification. certification. So yeah. you actually had to have, so they did labs. We actually practically had to learn that stuff, which was just odd. Like that goes, kind of goes back to really connected with me, hands-on building with my dad, you know, understanding construction, you know, as much as you can from a residential perspective and, you know, understanding what materials are and that type of stuff. And so me being able to apply that within my college like it just made sense to me. It made, it made it easier. But then I also really enjoy the theory part, like my business courses and that type of stuff was, was also a lot of fun. But, um, yeah, so then I got, get, you know, did some interviews, got a job out to move out to California. Uh, four of my brothers living in California at the time moved out and it was an inside sales job 
for a, a precast company and I hated it. <laughs> so you were out because uh, you understood it as an SME and you were certified. They're like, you could probably go sell solutions and because cu everything's custom, right? Basically. Yeah, well, so precast would be more like manholes and oh, gotcha. that all, you know, all that uh, DI, so drain inlet boxes, all the stuff that goes underground was this company. That's what they fabricated and built. And so it Got was it. like taking a set of, uh, that's where I learned how to reach uh, civil drawing. So I learned how to, to do AutoCAD and, um, and uh and understand structural drawings from when i worked at charter doing because i that's i did all the shop drawings as a project manager working for them and took that skill set and then i learned how to do civil design or civil uh read civil plans understand what inverts meant and you know what was the name of that, that company stuff. uh central precast it's they're actually not in business anymore they or they got bought out they it's were like, part it of like a great time to be in business if that's your product right now right yeah yeah. So they were they were laying down and pouring in Livermore. Is that yeah? So they had actually had a plant in. Um, so all their stuff was precast, right? So they had a plant in Pleasanton, um, and then their main headquarters and sales office. So they had a plant in Pleasanton, Lathrop, and then one down south of uh, San Jose. And I can't remember the name. Was right it now. just a service Northern California? Mm-hmm. Okay. But, so you but they were owned by a massive company called U.S. Concrete. They were like a one of their offshoots. Okay of us concrete interesting i'm trying to we're gonna we're gonna keep pulling back until we figure out like when was your first introduction to a data center what that was but so my first introduction to a data center was yeah. back in nashville and it was oh. working for charter and it was we were doing the concrete structure for uh, a bank and on under a gc and uh that's i mean that's where i remember the first thing time ever coming up for a data center ever was was then and it could and again we were just doing the concrete didn't know anything better didn't know what it meant didn't know about redundancies or sure or even really what was going inside of it we just knew this was a bank data center and that was it so a bank data center in tennessee i'm trying to think who that was and when you're uh you were 20 you're 21 or 22 around this time how old are you now i'm uh 38 all right, so we could probably try to. So when you were doing that, what was, what would, what made it so much different from pouring concrete from it being a data center versus a commercial warehouse or something else? Oh, the the size of the structure was okay. just because being bank, they wanted it to be tier you know, four. Yeah, but it, the structure needed to withhold like a X Y Z class of her like class four hurricane. Oh wow, tornado, and so the size of the structure was just like. Over the top. Over the top. It was just insane. Like we were, all of us were like, this thing's never coming down. Plus, ever. dang. So that was your first data center. Were you there when you were watching it? Like when you saw the the heart and soul get put into it too? No. So, cause when the, when the structure was done, we were done. Yeah. And the reason I got to be a part of that job was one of the, one of the tasks that Charter gave me was to run their finishing crew. And so I kind of got an opportunity to see a bunch of different jobs across uh, oh, I got you. Exposure. And so it was like, hey, we got to get, you know, we were starting to pour decks or whatever it is and would step in and, and help. I'll tell you one of the greatest things about Charter, and I highly recommend of any company, they had you spend three to six months in the field with the with a foreman or superintendent before they allowed you in the office. So funny story. You know Jesse from our team, right? Mm -hmm. So Jesse's uncle worked for me and it was a Vantage data center project years ago we were at nova and we were the gc and um i had a strong team on that program already and um jesse's uncle would try to convince me to hire or interview jesse for months 
But at the time, Nova had a lot of family. They're like a lot of second, third generation people. And I was trying to stop hiring family. Does that make sense? I was like, hey, I think we've done the family gig for a while. Let's see what happens when we bring on uh, as many people as we can from the outside. But uh, I remember it was like three or four months into it. And finally, Doug's like, hey, not for nothing, but he's like a war hero. He's got all these medals and been in a lot of this and that. And as a professional courtesy, I'm like, I probably don't need him, but I'll be happy to interview him and then maybe make a phone call to a couple groups. You know how this works. Yeah. And um, I missed the first interview with Jesse. Uh, it was a conference we were at and bad things happen, right? And then same thing, you know, <laughs> don't you judge me. So <laughs> the same thing happened on the second one. And it was the same, like, I always tell people the story. I'm like, I got Tinoco'd, right? That, you know what that means, right? So that means you're probably gonna have a hard time making your flight the next morning or a phone call. And this one was him. And it, I just remember thinking, I'm like, if it was anybody else, I'd kill it. But he's a veteran and I've already did this once to him, so I'm going to get him on the phone. And I remember talking to him just blindly, like going through it all and trying to listen to his story. And, and at the end, he was like, hey, not for nothing. And I had no intention of hiring him, but he goes, not for nothing. If you uh, give me this opportunity, I'll work everybody you got. And I was like, we'll see, right? Because there's some hardworking cats that we had on our team. We had just had some grinders. So I remember calling up Mike Maldari, who runs, he's one of the, he's like your counterpart at 1547, I guess now. But I remember calling Mike and he ran the field. And I said, hey, uh, I think I got another superintendent. I know we don't need one, but we're going to move him. Not move him, like his family's still in Ohio. But I'm like, he gets to fly home once a month and he's not allowed in the construction trailer for like three to six months. He, and basically we started almost like creating these qual cards to where the superintendents of all the trades once they all said, okay, he, he understands this language enough, then he's allowed in the trailer. So it was months before he was allowed to sit in the trailer, but I'm a big fan of that model where immersion is the only way to learn. Yeah. So there was another uh, guy that was going through it at the same time I was, and he didn't make it. Ooh. Didn't like the field, huh? Yeah. He just, he, yeah, he wanted to be in, in the office. And With so, the air conditioning. Yep. Yep. And, and it was like, so I was out in the middle of winter in Nashville laying concrete um, and it, but again, I, I, one of the benefits is you, you kind of look, I, as I look back at my life, one of the benefits is like, I wasn't afraid of that because I was, I had built with my dad, you know, for four years before that, starting at 16 and didn't matter if it was cold outside, you're getting up and you're going to be building that fence, that deck, that building, that re-roofing that house, whatever it was, like. They wake up and they put it in, man. Yeah, they just, just go to work. go do it. So going and doing this, you know, uh. And I hadn't finished my degree or anything, but going and doing it for, hey, it's part of it. Let's go. And, you know, the superintendent, awesome guy, uh, just, you know, was willing to take me under his wing. And I was able to help him out on the office side, right, to help paperwork, that type of thing, kind of things that he wasn't necessarily the best at. And so had a bit of a good relationship. He showed me what it meant to finish concrete and lay concrete and how many, it was, the whole intent behind it was for me to learn. Because if I was going to manage, if you will, and more of like a project management, like help make sure I'm not overloading them with too many projects, make sure we get good quality. I needed to understand what it meant. Like how many people does it take to actually lay that, that kind of concrete in that location? How many edges does it have? That type of stuff. And so you, as you, the only way you're really going to learn that is to be out there and be in it and say, Hey, you know what? That has a lot of handwork. That's going to take more workers than maybe this big open job where there's only it's only perimeter and there's not a whole lot of handwork on it. And so you get to learn those practical things that makes you and ends up making you a better manager 
you know, project manager be able to say, okay, well, let me, let me help resource load this with the superintendent to make sure that we were able to cover those projects. But hands down, you know, one of the best experiences I've ever had. Because it sounds like during that phase, regardless, I mean, if you started on the SME side or the expert side and accredited side with new certifications and stuff, but now you're learning the art of being a PM, right? And there's a lot more that goes to that, right? You don't have to know it all about something. You just had to know who knew it that's all right. about something. Then you had to be, figure out how to kind of coordinate, right? So that's your, you're in your early 20s. You moved to Pleasanton or Livermore. And you took a job working for a group and you were the sales engineer. Yeah, inside sales guy. And it was, yeah, it was basically you waiting for a phone call from some, you know, civil contractor saying, hey, I need it. Here's a set of plans. I need you to take them off and give me a quote for how much it's going to cost for all of these, these manholes. And, and what part brands. didn't you like about it? it Not I, a challenge? Yeah. Well, and also I wanted to be out like seeing things get built. And this was literally, you were just picking up the phone. Okay, let me do this takeoff. And then let me just send it off. That just, it wasn't engaging enough for me with people. How long um, were you there for? Like three, four months. <laughs> okay. And then what did you do from that point? So then I, uh, all of my brothers kind of have different, different, uh, backgrounds. Um, yeah. And so one of them is a, uh, was a professor at the time. He now is a VP at a university, but, um, prof professor at the time teaching communications. Well, they had the MBA program and I was like, you know what, I'm gonna go get my MBA. Uh, it was up in Oregon, up outside of Loyola. No, it's uh, George Fox University. Okay. And so I applied for the program, got into the MBA program, and then, you know, applied for some jobs and got some jobs. Uh, we ended up working for a general contractor called Inline Commercial Construction, and they did a lot of uh, medical work at Providence Medical Centers. And so got to step in, and they were, they were wanting to do more ground-up work. And since I had a concrete and, you know, kind of the beginnings of, of jobs, yeah. civil kind of experience, that's why they brought me on board was to help. But you know, part of it was like, well, you also need to learn what it means to do a TI, a tenant improvement at a hospital or whatever it was. So that's kind of where I got into some of the same, you know, the beginnings of more complicated builds and um, understanding MEP systems and, and that type doing of thing. Doing hospitals. I started in hospitals too. That makes yep. sense. When you were up in Oregon now at this point? Yeah. What so part I, of Oregon is that? Portland. Okay. So you're in Portland. You went from Livermore, Northern California to Oregon. Did you, and you had a brother that was up there, a professor at the university. Yep. So, and then you got into their MBA program and you're doing that while working full time. Yep. And what, uh, and the company was a, a traditional GC then never yeah, done at all. Family owned. Self-performed. Yeah. So they started out as a, as a drywall company. Oh, wow. And then, you know, kind of got it more into the TI saying, Hey, we can manage more of this. And so got more into the TI world and, um, so while I was in California for that three to four months, I met my wife. Who, um, okay. And so is that where she's from? She is. Yeah, she's from Pleasanton. Um, and so did a lot of yeah. So we ended up continuing to date, um, and then ended up getting engaged. And then how long was that MBA program? One year. It was uh, it was eighteen months. It was like an executive. So all the stuff was at night. Um, yeah. I actually ended up not finishing it because I um, and the reason being is that got married and I wanted to focus on my marriage, um, kind of learn from the first go around. Oh, I got you. I got you. Uh, and so I actually put that on hold. Um, and then we got married and then got a couple of job offers to move back to the Bay area. And we kind of always talked about getting back down to the Bay area. And since I put my, uh, my MBA on hold, th there was kind of two reasons I stopped. I, I had uh, a heart procedure. So I've had like three heart procedures. Um, and so that was my second one. And it was like, maybe I probably should slow down a little bit. Um, and 
focus on my marriage, focus on sure. my career, enjoyed the construction, enjoyed what I was doing. Um, yeah, so we ended up getting a, a, a couple job offers to move back down to the Bay Area, and it was like, well, my wife's from there, so she was good. Yeah. We'd made a lot of, I had made a, while I was there, I made a lot of friends there, a lot of people I still keep in contact with today. And so we ended up moving back down to. Did you have a job lined up when you moved or you just knew if you got there, you'd get one? No, we had a, I had a job lined up before. I moved. With a GC, another GC? It was with actually a developer, uh, but they performed their own uh, construction. They kind of were like a developer slash GC. What were they developing? Uh, mainly office buildings and stuff. Okay. Um, another family owned company that didn't necessarily, i I didn't fit their culture. Um, sure. uh, they were family in a different, you know, you, you were kind of mentioning that in a bit, family in a bit of a different way that, sure. that it, yeah, it I get it. wasn't my fit. And then ended up working for an owner's rep and which one, uh, O'Connor construction management. Hmm. Are they so, still around? Are they get absorbed by somebody? No, or? they're still around. They're, they're actually moving pretty national wide, but not on, not in the data center world. They do more of like, uh, educate, like higher ed, did a lot of, um, bond programs with you know middle sure. schools elementary like local school school districts and stuff um so i did that's where i kind of got into the world of the university and did stuff uh at san jose state working for o'connor doing uh their student union projects student health counseling and kind of you know, like building the whole buildings and stuff yep, like that. doing all okay. and that was kind of the so when i was up at uh with Inline, I actually worked on one of their first ground ups and it was for Providence Medical Centers and it was a medical office building. Okay. And it was to step in and kind of, and uh, to be the project engineer on that job with a good superintendent and yeah. How, um, when we're done, I want to tie it together and how you got to, like think about this type of question, like when we're done, once you start explaining that background and then how you've had a pretty pretty solid successful career in data centers in the amount of time you've been in it as well it sounds like you said it was fairly short would you hire you like looking back because like right now but what was it right so like that's where we want to get to as well as like i always um you know we have a we have an owner's rep group on the side that we do and we're not doing dcac and and there are all these requirements that we get from people all the time that have like an x amount of requirements that they'd like to see in the people they hire and when I ever sit down with these people, I'm like, hey, man, remember your first data center program? Like, were you and they're like, listen, man, I didn't even know. I didn't really know much about data centers when I got into it. Does that make sense? But they. It, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, kind of to let's, you know, to kind of focus on the data center world a little bit. So through my career, um, well, I've kind of always had an opportunity to kind of do some uh, complicated projects. Uh, now the university weren't necessarily complicated in the context of MEP, but, but when I did a stint at Intel Corp, uh, working for Turner construction, it was oh. all Intel work. And Seems so like Turner, okay. class one clean rooms, I did a, you know, uh, uh, added a UPS to their existing data center out there. I mean, it, okay. it was, um, did some fit ups with them, like a bunch of different projects, uh, you know, I did with Intel when I was at Turner. And so that kind of brought me into the mission critical world was probably some of my first steps. And then, um, you know, kind of, that's kind of fast forwarding, but had done some major cat projects some really big stuff at the university kind of moved on. I uh, wanted to get back to the GC side from the owner's rep side and, uh, work for Turner doing that. Um, so you went, you went GC Oregon came down to 
and did GC in California, then went to an owner's rep and then went to back to a GC. And the one you went to is Turner, yeah, which has a huge development training program. Isn't that where Matt and I mean, half of Matt's team is from there too, right? That's right. Yeah. So Turner does, uh, yeah, Turner's an interesting organization. So I, you know, I had a handful of years of experience before I went to Turner, um, and was sent out to the- How old were you around that time, you think? Like 26, 27? I'm trying to remember. That were you a been... PM or were you still- Yeah, I, I got hired as a PM. So I actually, so I ended up finishing my master's, but I did it in construction management ah, at, at okay. East Bay, okay. uh, at Cal State East Bay in Hayward, um, and met, and one of the, one of my classmates worked for Turner. And so she kind of recruited me over, Phyllis recruited me over- uh, to go work for Turner. And I was a strategic hire. They were like, you know, this was in like 2000, I'm guessing 2009, 10, 11. I need to go back. I'm sure my LinkedIn probably tells sure. everybody. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I don't needed, remember those stuff either. Yeah, needed to go back and take a look, but it was something around that time, but came on as a project manager. They sent me out and it was kind of funny. I didn't know where I was going. It was more of like, Hey, you should just come join Turner and come and be a part of, you know, what we're doing. Um, I was like, sounds great. Ended up, you know, ended up getting sent out to Intel and- Where was that at? Was that in- Santa Clara. Okay, so you were doing- Intel where were, work in Where were you Clara. living then? In Livermore. Yeah, so when we moved back from California or from Oregon, um, we lived with my in-laws for a, a, a short stint and then we got an apartment um, through some friends at church and then the market crashed. Mm. Uh, and I was doing a project with O'Connor in Pleasanton uh, called the Firehouse Arts Center. It's this really cool, they, it was a renovation of a old 1920s fire station in the 1960s. So we tore down the 1960s and then kept the 1920 fire station, redid it and turned it into a performing arts theater. Just a really cool, you know, sure. but it was like, we put the job out to bid in the, in the midst of, you know, the great recession. It was you know, it was like the bid numbers were, and it was a hard bid job. You know, you get to learn, you know, you get to learn really fast about like completion of documents and all that fun stuff. And it was, you know, I think it was like 8 million, 11 million dollars. Like a lot of disparity. Then. <laughs> and and you got to, you, you kind of got to go with a low number, right? And, you, and, but it ended up being a pretty good project. And, uh, but that was probably one of the, the long term. And I still talk to him today. His name is Randy Stewart. He was probably my first mentor. Randy Stewart, and he was at Turner. Yeah, no, this is at O'Connor. Uh, okay. So I backed up a little bit. This is 2008. This is with uh, O'Connor Construction Management. Randy's, you know, worked for Marriott for 20, 30 years, ran, you know, their Western, sure. all their Western projects for the longest time, and then had done consulting, uh, lives in Pleasanton, and just kind of took me under his wing and taught me everything he knew. Um, and so he's a guy I still actually connect with when I'm back in California. We grab coffee. Just Does he still, is he still in the game? Is he he is. Yeah. He's still running projects for O'Connor construction management okay. and stuff. And um, yeah. Just, and they do a whole thing. I mean, they're, they're a full GC shop. No. So O'Connor's the, the the owner's rep. So oh, we were the gotcha. owner's rep on that project. Got it. Okay. For the city of Pleasanton. I gotcha. Okay. And then um, by then, had you been involved with any other data centers or was it just between the bank and Tennessee and now Intel, which has a- Yeah, which kind of happened a bit afterwards. So it was like- Tennessee, ignore the first piece of California for a minute, did some hospital stuff up in Oregon, moved down, uh, started working for O'Connor, worked for a uh, developer for a short blip, didn't, that was that small family owned, didn't quite work out. Sure. Went to go work for an I've owner's rep. I've had one of those. Went to go work for an owner's rep, and that was O'Connor. 
and that was the first my first job was at that firehouse art center in pleasanton so when the market crashed uh i was like honey my wife and i was like we, well, let's go buy a house and so we bought a house in livermore good for you and so we lived in that house for 14 years or so um and before until we moved out to uh to denver yeah out to denver and so um so short commute, Pleasanton, Livermore, no big deal. That job wrapped up. And then I went out to work at San Jose State and started working on their their major cap projects. Okay. So that's probably, what, 30 miles to the west, but probably takes two hours to drive or something? Yeah, on a good day. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, you know, just like any good construction worker, you show up, you know, you show up super early. Yeah. And so that way you can beat the traffic and, you know, you, you always have aspirations of leaving early. <laughs> So you were, uh, did you spend those first few years at Turner in the trailer? Yeah. So yeah, on the job site. So when I was at Turner, it was actually at Intel's campus okay. uh, doing Intel work. And uh, it was out at their SC1, SC2 campuses in Santa Clara. How long were you on those programs for? Three years. Oh, no kidding. So you got to work in the same project at Turner for three straight years? Yeah. Well, it was, it was, so it was there, Turner, Turner at the time had this national agreement with Intel where they were doing pretty much all their 20 million and under as negotiated jobs. So I was in that program for the Santa Clara market. Did you, uh, there's a lot of talented people that have come from there. There's no doubt. Um, did you find a lot of value working there? Uh, yeah, a tremendous amount of value. And I think that it's kind of where you first start learning and understanding, uh, I think it continued to solidify because I did some controls projects at the university. They had a central plant, a cogen, so like Rolls Royce jet engine that's oh, producing that's, cool. that's connected to a turb like or connected to a generator that's producing their power, and then also has you know creating steam for their steam distribution. So there was like a controls project, and you get to learn a lot about again continuing that MEP experience, continuing that distribution. Um, what does it mean to you know run steam lines across a campus? Um, uh, so it kind of started probably, or especially after doing hospital work, kind of really started and focusing more into the controls and what does it mean to commission and what does it mean to work sure. in the critical. Because taking down that uh, that cogen meant significant dollars to the university because then because if that plant goes down, which produces all of their energy, they now have to pull from the grid, which means oh, gotcha. PG&E. And PG&E has, you know, peak charges, all that type of stuff. So it was, you know, kind of living in that critical world. And then getting over to Intel kind of just continued to solidify that for me and the, and the, in that context. And then they have some of their own data centers and so doing fit up projects, adding busway, adding a UPS, adding a PDU here and there, just different little smaller kind of TI type of projects for Intel and then doing some complete renovations of class one clean rooms for their tool installs and all that. Did you stuff. enjoy doing the semiconductor stuff at all? Oh yeah. I mean, it, because, More than data centers? Um, well, I mean, it was, I was in a different role. I was doing more of the, you know, hiring GC, you know, hiring subcontractors, working, you know, issuing yeah. contracts, writing scope of works, negotiating, you know, because all the stuff that we did was all negotiated. Yeah. So negotiating the, you know, making sure we have a complete scope, I uh, kind of got into the design build world and, you know, getting to manage design build projects and all that type of stuff. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, I don't know. I mean, I think what you'll find about me is I just love construction. Uh, okay. I mean, that's kind of my, yeah, I just I just love construction. That's great. It's, it sounds like it was in the family genes. What, when you when you left Turner, why did you leave Turner and where did you end up going? Turner continued to, 
they kind of went through a bit of a turmoil in, in the north. Was Matt Tyndall there when you were there? He ran like their mission critical practice. I think he was out of New York or Atlanta or something. Like yeah. That. So, I mean, I was mainly focused in the, the Bay Area. I mean, it was going like it, it was a tough market uh, in the Bay really? Area during the downturn, you know, oh. the 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, like all of that. It was just a, you know. Even though there was a lot of work happening in the Bay Area, it was still just a very tough market. To um, get work or? To get work and to keep it. And, you know, people, owners were trying to, you know. Beat you down. Beat you down. And Turner's relatively risk adverse. And, you know, it becomes a bit more of a, yeah. Did you do any data centers when you were at Turner as well? Uh, just the smaller, nothing ground the up, nothing like stuff. that. But just all the small stuff when I was doing the Intel program. What, what? why like did you hit a plateau and you're like i'm not being challenged anymore so basically yep so when you transitioned what'd you do i went to go work directly for the university at san jose state really and became yeah started uh as a project manager then got promoted pretty quickly to the associate director and then managed that that capitals project like two three hundred million and really capital projects so everything they were building you quarterback that stuff yep it's a big program so did you have like uh were you running it the same? Were you going negotiated the whole way through, or so it, that was uh, uh, design bid build days? No, it was actually we were we were so CSU. Um, so San Jose State's a part of the California State University system, uh, and they were actually pretty progressive. And guy by the name of Jim Sauerbauer, um, who was their chief of construction. So how it kind of works is that each university kind of has their own. Uh, kind of their own construction office and then but at the chancellor's office is kind of like the the mothership mm -hmm. and so in that mothership kind of world they um um yeah they 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 kind of standardize your documents all that type of stuff jim had recently retired he actually came down and consulted with us so jim retired from the csu being the chief of construction for all of csu and then consulted for san jose state so i got to work with him at san yeah. jose state which was again another great opportunity to work with a guy that had been he'd been in the industry for a very long time him and i actually worked together on what we called at the time design risk and it was before progressive design build in it, but it was the genesis of it, which was basically combining a design build, like the traditional, you know, design build bridging document, take a bridging document to bid and, you know, yeah. and then, and then, and then you're kind of wondering what you're going to get as the end result, because you hope that your, your stand, your spec was good enough for them to design to, right? Um, uh, to taking that with this progressive approach, taking CM at risk, which as we know, brings on the GC early, lets them do... Uh, pre-con, constructability, estimating services, all of that stuff to make sure you're tracking towards where you'd want to go. And so we kind of merged those two together, which was, well, you don't have to just do the estimate, but you actually need to manage the design to help us get to where we were trying to get to. And and what we want is we want this type of building. And so we did, uh, yeah, these progressive design build at the time, we called it design risk and got to kind of work through and, and write these contracts and how how do we navigate and how do we do this the best way? which kind of continue to further this idea of collaboration, like let's work together, but doing it in a contractual perspective versus then, hey, these are just the terms that we live within, but actually having the opportunity being an owner to step in and say, well, how can I affect that? How can I change that? Um, and so- Did you have some autonomy? Yeah, it was great. I mean, obviously we always had to live within the rules of the, the government, right? Yeah. Within, within what we were required to do based off of law, but having that and working through that and having that autonomy was- it was awesome. Um, and so like, how do you actually think about, it was kind of probably where I fell in, in love with being an owner 
uh, mm. which came into, well, I have this ability to figure out how to do it the best way in totality, not just for the owner, but for everybody, right? For the contractors, you know, for the owner, for sure. everybody and how to kind of, and so that's kind of where my love of um, design build and, and, and more collaborative ways of doing contracting, which is, that's kind of where I stepped in and got my certification in Design Build Institute of America, which actually is more about like, how do you be, how do you do collaborative ways of doing contracting? Did um, you, um, did you ever find yourself falling back into like a bad habit to where we're like, there's so many complicated pieces of that project, but when it came to the construction or the concrete stuff, it would like prick you up and you're like, oh, I'm going to go deep into that side. No? No, it just made it easier for me to call BS on things. Mm. <laughs> I've seen that. And I've, you know, we've, we've worked with a lot of very sophisticated end users that are armed to the teeth and they, seems like somebody's a subject matter expert on something. And when every time we fall into the wheelhouse of somebody's like, even on the finance side, you know, we were helping some private equity groups and they had a, an asset manager that, um, I guess he was a structural architect back in the day. So like we could have told him anything and he would have believed it. But if we had any comment or any message or any, you know, mention of something that had to do with his discipline that he went to school for, we would basically have to write dissertations for him on those things just because that's what he knew the best and he wanted to contribute and, you know, be involved in some way. So, yeah, no, luckily, yeah, to me, you know, I think if you ask my team, my general motto is be fair and reasonable. And so, you know, it's like, we don't need to get down to the weeds, but I, I would say if anything, my uh, kind of varied experiences help, especially being on a subcontractor, working for, you know, because one of the first job, I shouldn't say first, but when I was at Charter, I mean, I worked, we were a subcontractor to Turner out, oh, out okay. in Nashville, right? And so we were working on a, a job at, at Vanderbilt uh, Medical Centers. It was uh, Imaging Institute out there. And, you know, I was a sub working for a GC. So you know, I kind of sit, I kind of had the opportunity to sit around the table and all the different seats yeah. of understanding the different perspectives. And I kind of use that more in the context of how do we collaborate. And then if I can understand what drives you, then I can change the way I say things, not the actual what I'm saying or the, where I'm the trying context, to get to, though, yeah. but it helps me, it helps us connect quicker, which then becomes, lets us become more efficient, lets us be able to drive things faster. So All the same reasons why we're doing this right now, right? We were having that conversation on the way here. I'm like, you know, the... The genesis is, is we were talking about how you you have a very purposeful commitment to investing into the relationships with your partners that you work with today. And it's probably because you have been, you're on the owner's side now, but you've been on the other side of the ball plenty enough times to understand that, um, you know, having a healthy relationship with your partners allows you to move the needle. Not maybe always economically, but when it comes to speed of market, which seems to be the regardless of what the number one KPI is, it does seem as though that one is always tied for first, right? So um, I think if you come back and you look at your experiences and how you've tried to moderate the way that you engage with each different group, it's no different here, right? You're asking me like, hey, why did you even do this? We have DCAC Live, why are we doing this thing? And I'm like, uh, ironically enough, the two biggest complaints we always had was, is there's always an outlier at every conference. There's always one or two people that just kind of uh, knocked the, the cover off the ball, we say. And and then the complaints that we'd have is, look, I, did, I either need more of that or more of them or more cowbells, so to speak, or I need more conferences where I can have more opportunities to engage. So I was like, what if I just, if you wanted more from those people and I didn't want to dilute 
DCAC's one annual event by having multiple and multiple markets, why wouldn't I just create some sort of additional platform to where I could go high, wide, and deep into that? Yep. And you were like, well, why are you doing it? I'm like, well, I'm hoping that by the time that we're done, right now there are people that are able to bring you value and they don't know how to engage with you in a way in which they could offer you or offer you a way in which you could discover that value. And ultimately that's what you both want to find. They want to figure out a way to put points on the board and grow their business. And you ultimately will find something that you otherwise may not have been able to discover that could help you move the needle on one of those, you know, major top three KPIs that you have. And ultimately you have to be open-minded, you know, so when you stop, you know, you evolve or die, right? So when you stop learning, that's right. It's when you start having these problems. But when you were at Turner and then you left, like at what point did you, when you left Turner, where'd you go? So, uh, you know, starting to get to know each other. So in two, uh, I got to make sure I get my years right. I think it was 2015. Uh, um, Don't worry, we have 11 fact checkers in the back that are going to be. That's good. <laughs> Hopefully they'll, uh, yeah. You met Grant and his, his posse back there. He's yeah. got a ton of guys, but go ahead. Good. So, um, well, I'd get probably more in trouble with my wife on this one, but my uh, my son passed away. Ooh. And so um, was going hard at, at the university, loving what I was doing, working on a lot of different projects. It was, yeah, loving it, um, but was spending a lot of time at work. My son passes away, it kind of re resets. You kind of wake up from some things. And Everything realize, in life shifts to top dead center. Yeah, I mean, you kind of realize that you need to spend time uh, – you need to spend more time, especially in that moment and that time. And I think that's what's important for managers or even people in general is that, you know, things happen and, and we have to be okay and be agile to, to, to move to those. And I, and I look at that across if it's in business, if it's in your life or whatever it is. And so don't be afraid to say, I need to make a change and it's not forever. Cause we generally, I think humans, we generally think uh, decisions that we make are, are forever. And they're not. And and I think as you get older, you realize that's not the case. But sure. I think for a lot of people um, younger, they think that, oh, if I make this decision, I'm forever going to be stuck in this thing. And that's not necessarily the case. So, um, uh, yeah, so Turner to the university um, and then my son passes away. And then I got a job at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, um, oh, wow. which is right. I live in Livermore. Sure. Right next to my house. They had a, like I went from running a major capital program to running a handful of little projects as a construction manager at the But lab. that freed up your bandwidth so you could kind of spend time with family. Yeah. Right. I got because, you. because that's where my time needed to be spent. Exactly. Um and so uh yeah, which was so very blessed to have the opportunity to go work. Like think about it. Like who would have ever thought I could have like worked right next to my house for three years at yeah. Lawrence Livermore National Lab in a very low stress environment. Still doing some cool projects. They actually have high perform um, um, HPC, high performing computing there, um, uh, and so you know, just kind of getting in a bit of the data center, advanced manufacturing, but at a very different pace. <laughs> oh, government pace. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a very different pace. Exactly, a government pace is a lot slower, but it's what I needed. Sure. So I spent three years doing that, um, and very comfortable, not needing to go anywhere. That's when I built that house you know, on the, on my back property uh, in Livermore because I had a bit of free time, but I'm at home. And so, you know, you, I've always found myself doing, you know, trying to find and, and do something. And so, but doing high tech, again, doing high tech projects, doing medium, like I actually did a medium voltage distribution job there because Lawrence Livermore is their own, they have their own power 
So they're on their own utility. So they have their own medium voltage team. They call them high voltage team. It's really medium voltage, but they have their own team there. So I, you know, as a construction manager, project manager, did projects for them. And, uh, you know, ultimately people saw what I could do and I ended up taking on, you know, the estimating and scheduling department. And then, you know, you end up taking on a little bit more and a little bit more and you, um, but it gave me the time really where I could still, you know, do 40 hours a week, put my time in and go home. And my drive home was 15 minutes and it was, you know, I could be home. No, like you could literally do a nine to five, if you will. Um, and I was home at five fifteen, and which is what my family needed. It's what I needed. Uh, you gotta have time to mourn and time to process and time to work through that stuff. And so sure. I did that about three years, but still continuing the technical aspect of my career, still continuing the relationships and management and, you know, kind of being given opportunities, uh, even at Lawrence, Lawrence Livermore. So yeah, I did that for three years. Um, what do you think you learned there that you didn't learn working for non-government programs? Like not just the altitude and airspeed they probably operate at, but like, was there, was there a process or a means or a methods that maybe the, what we were doing, like what you see on the data center side is all about volume and velocity, right? So we're not necessarily going through the, um, what, what could take 20 steps to the government program is getting done in eight steps and what we do because we're kind of combining, compacting certain things and then leveraging or, or are leaning heavily on those subject matter experts based on their experience, right? Yeah, I would say that probably the big thing that I learned there was uh, it, it further sharpened my ability to get people to do things that had no need or desire to do what you needed them to do because they were, you know. <laughs> was there like a level of mediocrity there that you found? Oh, that, for okay. sure. Yeah, for sure. And, and look, I've worked with, like I worked I go back to, I worked with some amazing people there. Um, I'm sure. And just great people. But yeah, it was a, it was another level of bureaucracy. It, it probably flows a little bit into my, um, uh, sometimes people think that process is going to fix your problem. And I would always refer them back to the federal government. And if you want to, if you want to look how process doesn't fix your problem, <laughs> I mean, how many of our like major sure. government projects are over budget, over schedule, like, it, poor execution, not poor, process, poor execution, yeah. and but yet they have more processes and procedures than you can shake a stick at. That's like the same argument. I'm in the. We don't ever really talk about like politics and stuff like that here, but there was a conversation where people were like, some of the cities that have the most extreme gun laws have some of the most extreme gun violence, right? And I'm not applying that to one party or the other, but it's just I hear what you're saying. Sometimes you can impose certain rules, and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily always mean it's going to help you. Right. So, and that's exactly right. And so, which goes back to, um, and what I tell even my teams now is I, like, I hired you to think, Hmm. right? Like I hired you because we can say, hey, this is the process as well enough. Like it's hopefully to be a general roadmap, like a, a North Star, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can't veer. Or if you're like, if, if you're like, hey, I need to go here, but there's a cliff in front of you. Well, that, and it's literally right in front of you. That doesn't mean you can't turn a little bit left and take the stairs. Well, but, did you, but, but I need you to think to do that versus saying, well, the procedure says I just follow that North Star. When you adopted that methodology though, was it because you found yourself getting pent up with frustration because that that model or that opportunity to think freely 
it didn't exist. So you were like, man, this, if we just had the ability to just unleash me and let me, give me the ball, so to speak, then let me sort it. Or was it because someone gave you the ball and you were able to be unleashed and you found a lot of value in that, you know, you were more fulfilled professionally. And because of that, you were way more productive. Which of those two? I would say neither. Oh. And I'll tell you, I would say I took the ball and said, here's my objective. My object, because so what I say is that we all have confines that we have to that we have to work or live sure. within, right? Even so, at the lab, there was rules that we had to live within. Well, I just figured out how to navigate those rules faster, hmm. okay. right? So it's about being agile, being able to navigate flexible. through that, being flexible, and saying and helping people along to say, oh, well, yeah, that's what it says, but that but isn't but it doesn't say I can't go do this. Sure. And so, so understanding the limitations. Yeah, and then and then getting people to think outside of that box of. Well, because they assume, right, we make assumptions about what that means and what that says. And it's like, well, no, we can actually navigate through that. And we don't have to and, – and not doing anything nefarious, not doing anything wrong. It's just another way to work at it versus being like, no, we can actually push this along. We don't have to – like, it just says you need to get there at the end of the day. It doesn't say that you have to go down the cliff. You can actually go take the stairs that are there to the left or, you know, whatever analogy you want to use. And so you help people – navigate through that to say, we can still do it. Like I had to do earn value management. Well, great. But I wanted to do it in a way that was actually going to support my project. And so how do you get the, how do you set up the information and get it set up in a way that's going to help you and and navigate through that? So, um, yeah, no, I, I would say that it just continued to, uh, refine, like, don't let the limitations of, of what your perceived circumstances are to keep you from being successful. Because I, you can navigate through that. I was, we were still able to get my, that I did a, yeah, again, I did a project there. I was still able to get done. It was a medium voltage distribution job. We were still able to get completed on time on our budget. Um, uh, even with all those procedures and processes and we followed them all, but we were still able to navigate through and, and come up with creative ways to still press forward and, 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 and get through it. Did you ever find yourself facing any resistance from people that were like, Hey, slow down. Settle down. We um, have a, a little, yeah, a little bit, but it was usually support groups, not necessarily my direct group. And so, um, and, and because I think people were genuinely happy to see things progressing because it was the right thing. And it, it kind of goes back to, you know, I kind of had this conversation. One of the things I'm very much in, we haven't talked about it. I'm very much about mentorship and sure. growth. Like I taught it at Cal State East Bay after I finished my master's degree. I taught there for six or seven years. In, in really? Evenings. What was that all about? Just teaching construction management, wanting like wanting to pass on the things that I'd learned. And so also, was it like one night a week, two nights a week? Yeah, it was usually one night. If it was two nights a week, it was usually pretty, but uh, I, I think I might've done that one or two semesters a bit too much, but generally one night a week teaching in the master's program or teaching in the continuing ed program. Um, just a great, but it was all about like, for me, continuing to sharpen my skills, but then also to give opportunities. And there's a couple people who've, um, well, there's one that works at Vantage who was one of my students. Oh, that was, I was going to ask you if you ever hired one. Another, uh, a lady that uh, went and she went to go, I was at the lab at the time and she came to work at the lab, um, you know, helped her get a position at the laboratory, not look, you know, not my group, but, you know, doing sure. what, she, what she wanted to do. And so uh, very much, you know, that's kind of one of my loves and passions is to, it's growing. That, yeah, growing. And so I do a skip level meeting and then I also do skip level one-on-ones for some people within our, our organization. And, you know, for me, the, the big thing is just like encouraging them to like, like think, think about what you're working on, you know, like 
how like always do the right thing. And so like at one of my last skip levels is like my objective when I was at Lawrence Livermore National Lab was to do the right thing for the lab. No matter what, do the right thing for the lab. My motto advantage is do the right thing by vantage. And I expect the people who work advantage and I expect my third parties and my G like do the right thing for vantage. Right? Gotcha. Just do. And, and where so, do you learn that from? Was that your dad working with your dad? Yeah. I, do the right I, thing by the customer. Yeah. I, I think it's just, you only have one reputation, right? You only have one, like you got to live with yourself. And so life's too short to be worried about what's going to come back and bite you. Sure. And, and it's not to say that I don't make mistakes or that people don't make mistakes, but that's different than doing something nefarious or, or intentionally not doing the right thing. Um, mistakes are necessary, right? Yeah, that's right. And so, and, and it's about encouraging people, like focus on doing the right thing for Vantage, do the right thing for your company, whatever, wherever you're at, like do the right thing for the company. Um, and so that to me has been just a, a, a big part of, um, and that means also treating, because doing the right thing for my vendors and treating them well, fair and reasonable, which we kind of talked about a little bit, is so important to me because if I'm fair and reasonable with them, then they're going to continue to, you know, hopefully be. It's that simple, isn't it? It's not that simple for some people though, but that's an advantage, right? Because yeah. there are people that are out there putting their boots to people all the time. They're like, it's okay, right? So I was telling you, we were talking about it on the drive here. I'm like, I remember we were doing a program in Virginia and it was so massive that we had to have two different electrical contractors and they're big shops. And we weren't sure if we were gonna be able to get one of the other shops that we wanted. And we were lucky. It wasn't as though uh, we were paying better than the other group. It's just that we weren't offering as much brain damage. Like we were engaging with them and collaborative with them. And it was surprising to see how much more you could get with honey than vinegar, you know? And we learned a lot about really investing heavy into those relationships because they pay dividends in the long term, don't they? Right. Well, yeah. And it, I think it, it, the thing I also mention, and I also have to remind myself is that we're all human and the bad days. Bad days, good days, but like people are really just trying to earn a living. Yeah. Right? Like in general, and I'm not saying there aren't outliers and we can talk about, you know, sure. the outliers all we want. Um, but in general, people, no matter if it's the project manager for the the MEPs or if it's for the GC or if it's for the owner's rep or if it's for the owner, like they're all like they got families, they're trying to make a living, they're trying to do well by their family, they're trying to do well, well by themselves. And if you can keep that in context as you're engaging with them and you're having conversations with them, yeah. like it'll go, like if you always remember that, it'll go, like it'll take you so far. And, sure. And in how you engage with people uh, and and what you, because we make a lot of assumptions like, oh, that person just wasn't paying, they, they cut me off. Well, how do you know they're not going, they're not trying to race off to, see their mom before they pass away. There you go. You, you, you just don't know, right? We, we make, we assume the worst in others uh, generally. And so, and what I would encourage people to do is like actually assume the best. Assume like there's a misunderstanding. Yeah, because it could be us that's cutting someone off on accident because because we had a, I've done that. I mean, you saw me do that today, actually, right? Where I was like, <laughs> my bad. But listen, it's going to happen. That's why I don't ever lay on the horn with anybody because it's the same things. I'm like, listen, it all gives and take. Like even when my kids were participating, and they still they participate in sports, there would be like uh, you know a bad call here, a bad call there. And my my kids would be all upset, and I'm like, it all balances itself out. You're going to have calls that should be called that aren't, and it's going to be in your favor. So like, 
just ride it out, right? So, but you end up at the lab and uh, is that where you met Jennifer? Uh, Volbert? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's awesome. Marine, right? So I'm really, um, we think really highly of her and, and everything that she's doing, right? You ended up uh, leaving the lab though. Is that where you went straight? Did you go to another GC first or did you go straight to- I went to Vantage. How did you go to there? So <clears throat> I get called by a recruiter um, and says, hey, there's a project manager role uh, for a data center developer in Santa Clara. And I'm like, there's only one that I could think of. And the reason that was the case is yeah. because Spencer Myers, who I worked with back in the day when he was with AlphaTech and I was with Turner. Oh, that's right. He and, was AlphaTech. And AlphaTech was doing work for Turner on yeah. one of my projects. That's where I got to know Spencer, Okay, his wife, Jennifer, and, you know. Uh, awesome guy. Yeah. Awesome guy. Um, and I told the recruiter, I said, you know, thanks, but no thanks, not interested. Did you know Spencer was there or was Spencer I knew yet? Spencer was there because okay. of LinkedIn, you know, it's the only way I kind of, you know, I knew he was there. And so, um, and so I just said, hey, thanks, but no thanks. And I, and I asked her the question. I said, hey, is Spencer Myers the, um, the hiring manager? And she goes, he is. And I said, well, tell Spencer I said hi. Ah, uh, <laughs> did Spencer know that you were applying? Well, it was, I hadn't necessarily applied because I just got called by a recruiter. Okay, so. And so when I told her, thanks, but no thanks, but hey, let Spencer know I said hi, because I hadn't probably talked to him in a handful of years. Sure. Um, she, you know, she was like, oh, okay. Call it two weeks, a month later, I get a phone call back from her and she goes, we actually have a director role that we're looking to hire. And, you know, Spencer. Spencer says you can call, yeah. Yeah, Spencer wants you to apply for that role. And I said, now we're talking. Sounds good. Um, that was that was willing to get me out of my cushiness at the lab, you know, my forty hours a week out of the laboratory uh, to go and so uh, um, go off and meet with Spencer. We do a thing called CBBI. It's cognitive behavioral based interviews, and so it's where you go through and they ask you, you know, tell me about a time when type of questions. We still do it today, which I think is a great process. It really helps you get to know. So, what do you do? I, I want so, to understand yeah, this more. Yeah, yeah. So in the interview process, so you kind of do a tech interview to begin with. And then after that tech interview, we do The this. tech interview is based on construction? Yeah. So depending okay. on what position, if you're doing finance, it's finance. You know, the hiring manager usually is going to ask you questions like, can you actually chop the wood you're in supposed the subject, to chop? Yeah. Yeah. And the subject that you're supposed to make it happen. Um, and then after that, then they have a panel, but it's individual meetings where they give them topics like- uh, you know, customer service or integrity or uh, thinking critically or you name sure. it. Um, and they ask you questions about, tell me about a time when, and it's called cognitive behavioral based interviewing. And it's all about get, versus, hey, just answer these questions and people can kind of BS the answers because they can know what you want to answer. This is more about like, tell me about a time when you had a difficult customer and what did you do? Okay. Yeah. Because it's inevitable. <laughs> Right. Right. Or tell me about a time when you failed, uh, you know, or tell me about a time you had to make a difficult decision that no one would have known about, i.e. I. around integrity or whatever it is. Sure. So uh, I spent a Friday going through all those interviews. Um, There's really no prepping for that, right? You want to have some sort of canned something, but it would not be, it'd be pretty transparent that you're yeah. being genuine. Yeah. And that's kind of, I think the intent is to be genuine. So uh, yeah, that's interviewed. Got the position, and then I worked on uh, our CA2 campus. It's our second campus in Santa Clara. How long ago was this? Uh, How long have you been Advantage, I guess? Uh, three years and seven, eight months. So you started there 
as a director in September of less 18. than four years ago. Yeah, September of eighteen. And let me ask you, based on your data center experience, would you hire a director with your data center experience? Yeah, and I'll, Spencer and, knew you, so that obviously validated that, yeah, a lot of stuff. But. Yeah, that helped. And I'll say yes, because there's a guy on my team uh, who's a senior director. His name's Simon Casey, and he runs our Western side. And he came from never done a data center in his career, and but he did work at SFO uh, for um, 10, 12 years, did That's other sad. projects, you know, uh, interviewed well. But also I got a phone call from uh, Brett Boncher, um, COO over at uh, Cupertino. Okay. And he said, hey, I heard that um, Simon Casey applied. Uh, you got to hire him. Really? Great. All Did he the... work for Cupertino at the time? So, no, it was that he was, so Simon was an owner's rep up at SFO. Oh, gotcha. And the Cupertino respected Simon so much that that's I got a, a call deal. from Brett, which I was like, that's kind of. <laughs> if vendors are putting themselves out. Yeah. For this I was person. like, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of uh, bizarre, but cool. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of just continued to solidify and, and, um, Simon is, again, didn't have any data sort of experience. He's been with us for a bit over a year. Um, I might be getting that wrong. He might be here for two years, but um, whatever period of time it's been and he's crushing it and had no data center experience. Okay. So you would go back and hire. Okay. So what is it that offset the experience that helped you feel comfortable? Was it his knowledge on general construction or the fact that vendors in the ecosystem liked him? and Because if they like you, they're going to make sure that you're successful. Right. So that means they won't let you fail in those programs. Right. So what was it? Was it that he had, you know, the, the chorus sings louder than the soloist, right? So he had enough support that you knew that he had. I, I would say it was a, um, a couple things. His construction experience was, you know, it's amazing. Right. And 12 years at SFO. Yeah. And then, and then had plenty of experience before that. Right. Uh, and so, that was a piece of it, but I would say, obviously, just I felt culturally he'd fit well. But I would also say that it had to do um, SFO. It's it's a bit of mission critical, right? You can't just take down sure. a, a gate or like it. It also has a of a aspect of mission critical criticalness. Then also that like, it was kind of like not just one thing. It was kind of that chorus of things of then also, hey, look, his I think he put down was one of his references as being one of the GCs that he did work with. Then also having the call from Brett. Uh, you know, and understanding those things. And it was like, you know, yeah, he, he can figure it out. It kind of goes, so born in uh, Northwest Arkansas, the home of Walmart, you know, in Bentonville. Um, you know, one thing that Sam Walton said was, I'm not the smartest guy, I just hire them. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like that's probably been my whole life. Um, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy. I just, I, and, and I don't necessarily hire them. What I did was I tried to figure out, hey, Oh, you know this? Well, can you help me out with this? Like being humble enough to say, I don't know that, but you do. Can you help sure. me out with this? Hey, can you help me out with this? And I felt like Simon has a bit of the same thing that it, he was, he's not afraid to say, I don't know data centers. I know how to do contracts. I, knew, I know how to be fair and reasonable. And sure. I know how to uh, get people to do things they, they need to do. I mean, I can name Rob Geyer, who was one of my students who works for us now. He's delivered uh, now one or two DMs with us in Santa Clara. He's leading our third building on that second campus. He never done data centers before, but, and it's not to say that we also then put the support, we put the right MEP support with them. Um, 
that way they're not set up for failure. They're set up for success. And But as they do that, they're learning and growing. Another guy by the name of Justin Douglas who um, worked with me. And I remember when he, he uh, it was probably, I'd probably been on Advantage for six or eight months. And he goes, I don't know anything about MVP. And I said, don't worry, we'll figure it out. We have people that do. Yeah, right. yeah, we'll figure it out. And Immersion. So that, exactly right. And so, and we're kind of doing the same thing up in Canada where we're taking those people who yeah. understand how to do work the Vantage way uh, to deliver for our customers and we're sending them to Canada to help um, to help those. And, and what I tell them is their job is to work themselves out of a job. We need them to stand on their own to deliver their projects up there and then come back down and we got plenty of other work for you to do down here. So I don't, you know, this might not be very popular in the data center world, but like, especially as, as fast as we're going, we're going to have to continue to find great talent I agree. outside of the data center, like sphere. Um, I can't agree with you more. I've hired a lot of people in my time. And um, when you do enough hires, you, you make bad hires sometimes too. And over the course of time, like I said, failure is necessary because it's the, you don't learn anything from the things you do well. For every good hire I make, like a Jesse or an Anthony, make you know a bad one, right? And sometimes I try to go back. I have a you know I'm pretty critical and try to analyze and interpret what I'm doing wrong. And uh, I find comfort in a certain level of experience. But if I were to go back and look at like why did I hire Jesse? You know I just told you that story. Well, he had a chip on his shoulder, right? He had something to prove, right? Anthony, I hired him coming out of the military too. And he was born and raised in a construction environment with his family. But um, again, no real data center. He wasn't used to doing programs at that scale, right? Data centers are pretty intense, very, um, a lot of capital going into such a small box. Would you agree? Yeah. And he had grit, right? He's like, man, I, I was a crane operator too so i could know how to operate the backhoe i was you know he was doing all kinds of things on these programs and i found it was those people that i guess the word that pant lencioni uses is hungry right they were just i just need to find hungry so when you go and you look for people to join your team what's the number one thing you look for i would probably say the biggest thing is cultural fit okay so how do you break that down what are you looking for specifically from a cultural perspective like the social dy dynamic and chemistry uh is important but is there something else that's there that you need to see under the hood that like they have to be self-driven they have to be motivated because that fits your culture or yeah I, I think the other thing is is that you know our world is so dynamic they also have to kind of have we were talking about Jocko Willick a bit earlier right like they kind of have that extreme ownership yeah and and that extreme ownership doesn't mean that you do everybody else's job for them it, it means that that you have an objective it's to deliver your project and you pull in the resources and you make happen what needs to get happen obviously ethically, morally, and legally sure, <laughs> um, to deliver your job, sure. right? And so I think that's the other piece. And as I step back and I look at it, I was even having a conversation today with Rob and I said, Rob, like we have a problem with a budget here, but it's not like it is yours to manage, but it's not yours to carry on your own. That's why we have a team, sure, right? And so if there's something that's coming that somebody's trying to throw on your project that you don't, that doesn't seem right, you need to bring that up to me or to his boss, right? Simon, actually, he works for Simon. I'm like, you need to bring it up to Simon and we'll work this out together. And then you can't think about it as a failure. The extreme ownership is I'm I'm dedicated to deliver what I, you know, my North Star, this project and to make it happen. And that means you have to use all the resources. And sometimes that's your management. Sometimes that's other people in the organization. Sometimes that's our vendors, wherever it may be 
to step in and to help you deliver that. That's having the extreme ownership. It's not doing it all yourself. Well, I think that's the balance that we have when we have teams underneath us is it's uh, you're trying to figure out what's the maximum amount I could put on this person to where they could maximize their success before you hit that fine line where it becomes a failure, right? And trying to understand what each person's individual capacity is, right? To carry whatever burden it is they have in the scope of their job. So for me, I was always like, okay, there are certain people that have amazing skill sets with, and as an example, like for us, we have people that deal with pressure really well. They, they don't even get rattled a little bit. And that could be because, you know, we have a lot of former military that are used to getting shot at and they're like, wait a second, no one's getting blown up or shot at today. We could go, (laughs) we'll go talk about the budget, but I'll live, you'll live, we'll all go home. Right. So it's, it's all perspective. It's the, you know, the aperture in which you view it through, I guess, is how you determine how you're going to respond to that challenge. But when you look for someone and you're looking for a cultural fit, you're looking for someone that is going to kind of be willing to, they're brave enough to raise their hand and say, I don't know. Yeah. And, and, and they're going to own it. And then they're going to own the responsibility to go learn it? Yeah, and, and they're also going to own the project. Okay. Or own whatever the task is. Like, um, you know, the other thing that, it, yeah, I, I would say that they're going to own, like, if I can trust that they're going to own it, like, that's a hell of a lot better than having to kick them. Sure. Um, but if I know that they're going to own it, that to me is that, you know, the the other pieces of the, then that aspect of EQ are actually like, understanding what does it mean to drive, you know, to, to have those relationships because in our world, no one's doing anything alone. Yeah. Like, I mean, sure. And, and there are obviously some, you know, a technician, sure. They can go up and wire something and they're kind of generally doing it on their own, but there's, but we can still, we can have that theological debate for, for, a, you sure. know, if we want, but at the end of the day, especially in our world, you're not going out of the loan, which means you need to have, figure out that relational aspect. And so, um, being people smart, uh, and so, but also owning, you know, owning that project, having that extreme ownership to me is just something that's just So what do you important. do? What do you do as a leader? What do you do personally? Like you were telling me about how you're, you know, this book you're reading or audio books you're listening to, or you're like, I'm not really a podcast guy. I don't listen to them all. Ironically enough, as you're on one, <laughs> you'll probably hopefully at least watch this one. Right. So you have a lot of talent. I mean, like Matt, all those, yeah. a lot of I people. A, I have an amazing team, no doubt. No doubt. But like, did did you work with those guys at Turner? Did you know them already? Or so some... I, I, you know, as we all, we we uh, we benefit and we suffer from the forefathers, you know, our sin, the sins and good things of our forefathers. And so I would say that I had a bit of both of that, you know, given the opportunity to become VP and then, you know, recently promoted a senior VP and, you know, Matt Souders and, uh, a handful of others, like I had, the, I, I had the benefit of of they were there already doing good things, and then, you know, I look at my job, especially for high performers like those guys, is is to block and tackle and support, um, and one of the big things is just making sure I'm supporting them, uh, and it's kind of being the 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 conduit between our business being a developer and providing a quality product for our customers, operating all that stuff, but all but being that conduit between how they're making decisions and how they see reality and then how's the, life. Then then what's construction and how does construction play into that? And so I see myself as being that conduit between the construction group, giving them the support, giving them the block the blocking and tackling that they need to go off and be successful to do the right thing for Vantage and for uh and then, and then communicating, hey, here's risks, here's realities, here's, uh, 
the things that we can and cannot do, uh, and and then translating that in a way that that uh, that's beneficial to the to the decision makers within our business. What made you decide to go to Vantage? Because you live in a market, really? Because flat out, I got you. And then, and I would say Spencer and the opportunity, because knowing that I got to step back in doing what I was doing at the university of running a program to kind of step in as a director and and see multiple projects happen at once, get back, you know, to kind of see something. And also to, I mean, doing like full stop, the lab, uh, great place to work. Um, it, and, and I had, and, you know, met Jennifer there. And you, as you mentioned, Jennifer's amazing. Uh, you know, I can name off a, plenty of other people who were amazing. It's just, I was looking for a different pace and more opportunity, more growth. And that is the biggest thing. I, I did, did you want to be in data centers or did it just so happen that you knew Spencer? I just happened to knew Spencer. And when you and Spencer crossed, when he was at Alpha Tech, which is a fantastic shop, by the way, uh, a lot of good folks there that we have a lot of respect for. When he was there, were you guys doing a data center project together? We were. Okay. So you had worked with him in the context of data centers and okay, that makes more sense too. And then in that time that you got there, like what's some of the things that you learned the most? Um, hmm. Have you been humbled by anything? Have you made any big mistakes of your own? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> like what? Like hiring the wrong person or? Yeah. I mean, so. Uh, That's the most humbling thing for me. I'm like, I don't even get involved with any of our hiring, right? Because I need to have, I need to remain as objective and away from it as I can, right? And I'm like, I need you to staff your teams versus me telling you who to hire and who to pick. I just ask that they fall within this profile, right? Cultural, yeah. that's the number one thing, yeah, right? Yeah, co and that's that's exactly right. And COVID has, you know, a lot of people blame a lot of things on COVID. Um, I, I still, you know, and there's a reality behind that. And so it made it difficult for us to travel in some parts. So my uh, preview is for North America. Um, it made it difficult during COVID for me to get some places where I needed to get to because- Couldn't you know, travel. Couldn't travel. Um, so that was one of the complexities of that. And um, it really pressure tested your teams, I guess, at that point, making sure that they were really capable. Yeah, and and we had we had acquired a team that wasn't so much, and you know we're we're suffering from that. Um, and so, and but it probably taught me a bit about perseverance, and then also continuing to push the team and how far can you, and understanding. Uh, uh, situations and how far can you push people, and then also to, to encourage people to persevere. Because as you you know, as you move, as you know, as you move up more and more in the organization, um, bad things are going to happen. Uh, bad decisions are going to happen. You know, things, uh, bad calls. You know, things that you have zero control over are sure. going to happen, and it's about how you respond to them and about how do you persevere through it. And so. Uh, I would say one of the biggest things I've learned, especially probably uh, over the past year, year and a half, has been about perseverance and saying, nope, we got to stick through it. And then also, how do you communicate that perseverance to the team to get them to continue to persevere through it? And I think that's what really helps refine people and refine you know, the character. And it's and you can't keep them in it forever, right? At some point in time, you do need to get through it. You do, do need to and the good news is I think that um, we're relatively through some of those really, really tough times around sure. that specific instance. It was chaos. It was like a dumpster fire for a while where, you know, the the rules were changing daily for a while, remember? Oh, I try. 
I remember, yeah, I mean, I remember being uh, in my house in Livermore in 2020 and it all going down and me being, I'm like walking the blocks in my neighborhood on calls on trying to figure out how do we keep different projects going because they're, I mean, we're critical infrastructure, right? People were working from home. They needed, they needed. And your labor was essential. That's right. And so how do we navigate through all that? But it wasn't just one market. It was all of our markets. Um, Now, obviously we, we face other challenges. And so, but I would say probably the biggest thing has been the perseverance on some things that, that maybe were outside of our control. And then you try to, you know, you do a, a bit of soul searching and say, well, how much could I have affected that? And trying to be honest with yourself, because as you, as you mentioned, and I, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more is how do you, um, how do you recognize you failed, but being honest with what wasn't, it wasn't necessarily all of yours. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but then how do you do that in a, in a good balance in a way that you can say, okay, let me learn from that and let me figure that out. Um, and so, I think that that was probably, and then stepping back and being there's times, I mean, there's times where I'm, I'm at home and I'm like, screw this. <laughs> like I've had enough, like this has just been rough. Sure. Um, and so, and, and it being a leader to say, keeping that at home, uh, if you will, or, you know, internalized or with maybe some trusted friends who don't necessarily work in your you know, yeah. directly, or or if maybe they do work for directly, but you have a relationship with them that they understand. Hey, we're all human. Versus, sure. you know, maybe a project engineer who's you know just trying to grind it out on the job and stuff. And so, um, to have that, you know, that maturity and that context. And so, um, yeah, I would say probably the biggest thing has been that's the biggest thing. It's you know, biggest challenge. Yeah, has been perseverance, push, continuing to push through, continuing to go when when you just you feel like it's just never going to end. Well, what's been the most rewarding? The teams, the Like having the ability to work with amazing people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, hands down my favorite too. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 why I do a book club. Like I have a book club. Yeah, and, we did that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's and it's people who want to show up and, and join and let's read a book. Let's, you know. What kind of book? We've done, we've done Extreme Ownership. We've of done um, Radical Candor. Do you uh, do it like on a your team? Like we made each GC have a book club. And then we would, I mean, I'd go out and buy, you know, 30 boxes or 30 books, you know, Amazon, whatever, and hand them out to everybody and be like, okay, hey, look, we're all in this together. And I mean, to the credit of those GCs, they bought in on those programs and adopted it. And it was the mindset of the philosophy that we wanted to have as an overlay for that entire campus, right? Because that yeah. was the culture. But we had it, it wasn't just to my team, it was really to the field teams too. We looked at them as an extension of us, right? And we couldn't be successful without our partners. So we were always... If it was good for us to read, like, why wouldn't it bring them value too? So we were, we were kind of, um, I think it, it helped us give, it was a vehicle for us to help them understand what our expectations of them were. Does yeah. that make sense? Like how to, how to treat each other. Yeah. How to engage. How to engage with each other. Yeah. Because it doesn't take long on a construction program that has such aggressive timelines and, uh, so many massive challenges that could present itself from supply chain alone. Like I would have transformers falling off the back of trucks or stuff that would show up and like whatever protection they had inside of them. I was getting MPS containers that, you know, something happened the trucker didn't realize something fell off the bottom of it and everything's water on the inside. Like nothing ever showed up right. Does that make sense? And it was like triage du jour, right? So those books were helping us figure out how do we do it without everyone declaring war on each other and everyone just rolling up their sleeves and like, one team, one dream in it, right? So 
what is yeah so so my book club actually is just within the construction group advantage um and the for whoever wants to attend i don't force it upon it you buy them a book yeah yeah it's like buy the book expensive like I, and we, we do the same yeah download so, the book here's your thing yeah down if you want to audiobook it go audiobook it i get it right yeah. but you know if you, if you want to join and you want to continue to grow and learn hey come join it and and let's and then we discuss the book and we talk about it and say hey like do you define the books or do you let them each like recommend a book or so it's been more of i've been hey here's a lot of good books that i've read sure uh, and then recently it was you know hey what book do we want to do and you know sure. i said hey here's kind of an idea somebody else threw an idea and i was like oh yeah that's a good one we should do that one and, and what are the books are are they focused on like leadership and culture yeah, I would say teamwork. Um, yeah, teamwork, leadership, culture. Uh, um, the, the name's escaping, but it's about um, how do you uh, present yourself digitally, like texting or email mm. or on Teams meetings or whatever, you know, and how do you engage people, like kind of like the EQ, but digitally? Because nice. th there's such a big piece of it where I'm sure you could get a text message from one person that says, you know, okay. And you get a text message from another person that just says, okay, uh, and and they can mean totally different things to you because you know them differently. Yeah. yeah right. Sure. And, and just kind of being cognizant of that. And then at, and in, in business and, you know, and I'm sure, you know, you hear stories about somebody saying they got a text message that's like, oh no, or whatever it is. And then you don't hear from them and you're like, what, when, what, what, what happened? What went wrong? And we leave our brains lead to the worst conclusions. So that's kind of the, just a, how do we be better? Does that start with you or does there like the surreal or you know, like the rest of the executive team have their own book club, I guess? Or? So now, so Jay, uh, so Chris Yetman, Yeti, uh, he he had uh, books that he would have us read um, and I would read some of the, through some of those. And then uh, that's kind of gone by a bit of the wayside, but I picked that up, but I did kind of open it up more. That was more for like his direct reports when I reported up to Yeti um, and that's kind of changed. Um, I now report up differently through our president for North America, but, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I've kind of carried that on and I mean, it's always like, how do you find that balance? Cause everybody's moving so fast. Um, but I still, I mean, I'm a bit, probably a bit different than a lot. Uh, like I still do my best to read as many books as I possibly can. Um, I don't have my. Like we were talking about this and you're like, I'm actually reading a physical hard copy book right now. And I'm like, I don't remember the last time I've had the opportunity to do that. I'll be getting to that point, I think, in the next few years when I don't have as many kids in high school, I guess. So busy with sports and stuff that I like the best I can do is listen to while I'm driving down the road to get to the airport or while I'm getting ready to get on an airplane. But I don't normally have the ability to sit down with a book in my lap and just enjoy two hours of letting the pages you know, bathe over me. I have to listen to it while I'm on the run. And that's another reason why I love podcasts, right? Because, yeah. you know, if you seem like you're a healthy, fit guy, you know, I, I try to stay as healthy as I can. I'm trying to be as active as I can in the mornings that I'm not traveling. I'm trying to, you know, go for a walk or a workout or hit the gym or whatever. And it was just something to pump into my ear holes. And the podcast gave me an opportunity to kind of sift through, yeah. you know, versus a, an entire book is a large commitment of time. And I, I still listen to plenty of audiobooks, but I found that I could pull little pockets um, from these podcasts, sometimes they're extremely relevant. You know, they're talking about current events. So if you want to, you know, learn something about Ukraine or something, who knows? But there's, I mean, when we started this podcast, um, I had been on, you know, uh, Dave Liggett does an amazing podcast, Data Center Hawk, awesome guy. And uh, Rich Miller, Data Center Frontier, let me do one with them. And and I was a little bit surprised to see how how little, there's not a lot of podcasts in our space. So if 
back in your day when you were in Tennessee, if you did like podcasts or whatever, you, yep. you know, you may have been focused on construction because that's where your passion is and you, you love just building, but there wasn't really anything that opened it up to where I was like, okay, so what's it like to build in the data center vertical, right? And then how do you even become that? How do you become the SVP of a group like Vantage, right? And this story helps a lot of people that are, there could be some kid in college right now at some construction company that's, you know, whether he's getting a CM degree or concrete degree and he's like, so I could one day build these massive, because I don't think there's anything more exciting than building data centers. I, I, I don't think there's anything as challenging. You know, I, I, maybe that's just me because I'm extremely biased, but <laughs> I've got to build lots of fun stuff. Nothing's yeah. more, like nothing has more moving parts in my opinion so far. And I've never built, you know, these big clean rooms for the Intels and stuff, but these data centers, there's, there, you could have, there's only, you know, so many different, electrical and mechanical permutations or tier standards, but there's a lot of different ways to get there. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I, I would. I would say that probably it's, I would say that data centers are like, when you think about the complexity, they're on the higher end of complexity, but there's obviously, as, as you just mentioned, there's more complex, sure. right? Uh, especially if you get to the nuke world, there's, there's some systems yeah. that are far more complex. What I would say is that the speed that we also have to do it is yeah. what kind of amplifies the fun intense intense <laughs> yeah which which to me is intense is fun right so that to me is what really pushes it and that's kind of what i tell some of the new people who have not done who are joining vantage uh who have not done data centers before i'm like um the buildings are complicated they're not overly complicated like i think a lot of people can understand how the systems work right if you have a general understanding of construction or engineering yeah. and stuff, I think people, it, it's not overly complicated that you need a, you know, you need some massive degree to go figure it out. So they are complicated, but at the speed that you have to do it and then the accuracy, because they have to work. And I think that's the other big piece, right? It's yeah. like, look, the air conditioning goes down in a, in a student union or in an office building. Okay. It's unpleasant. Yeah. It's unpleasant. Right. Um, and also, you know, if, if one goes down, it's, it's unpleasant, but it's not, it's know, not an SLA violation with liquidated damages. Yeah. It, it's not, right. the end, yeah, it's not the end of the world <laughs> right. for, you know, when that happens where it's completely different for data centers. And I think that's what, it's not only that they are relatively complex, we have to build them really fast. Um, but then it's also, they have to be right. Like the rigor that we go through for our commissioning and to make sure that sure. they're going to work as we expect them to work, that they're going to do exactly as you expect them to do is that, that to me, those three components is what I think is provides that intensity, provides that fun with our industry, which, you know, I've, I've grown to love over, you know, especially being fully immersed in it in the past, you know, three, four years has, yeah, it's, we, we have very much uh, the blessing and the privilege to work in a, in an amazing industry. So what's the advice you give people when you just, like, I know what I try to tell people when we first hire them. Um, once they're on board, I, I try to send them a nice note and be like, hey, listen, this is what you have to do to be successful. That's it. What do you tell people? Uh, I probably try to tailor it. It depends on where they're coming from. So if they're coming from the general contractor side, it's helping them understand. Because if we hire somebody who has data center experience, but they're coming from the GC side, it's a helping them understand what does it mean to be an owner. Mm. Because it because the picture... Because they think, they think it's a contractor they, still. Yeah, exactly. They yeah, think I'm it's a contractor. It. So... It's like, well, help, let me help you think about how, what does it mean? What does it mean to be an owner? Because sure. it's different and you have to think about different things. Mm -hmm. um, there's more than just one lever of, you know, cost and schedule for us, right? There's, 
development, there's approvals, there's entitlements, there's financing, there's customer, you know, our customers that have to get moved into the space or, you know, hopefully we sell the space to that customer. Like there's a handful of more moving parts than, than, uh, I'm going to use the word only, but as being a GC. Uh, so it depends on where they're coming from. Um, where if they have no data center experience, but they've been an owner before, well, it may be, okay, well, this is like, probably let's dive into what does it mean to commission a building? And because a lot of people don't, like we think commissioning, like a lot of builders will think commissioning a building and it's, you know. We're blowing the doors off it sometimes. Yeah. And yeah. It, where our commissioning is very rigorous. Oh, for sure. Very detailed. And so it depends on their background is usually the, the piece that I give them. But hands down, no doubt. It's like, treat people well. Like if you, like, I've seen people come in different companies, Vantage being one of them, where they step in and they basically say, you're doing it all wrong and this is the way you need to do it. Um, and yeah, How's yeah, that work? Yeah, we, we know how that works, right? <laughs> right? It doesn't work well. And then I see people who step in and who learn and understand and then they try to build upon the good work that's already been done. And when you do that, like that to me is the, that's the differentiator for a lot of people, especially as you are you know, joining a new organization, no matter where it's at, it's like step in uh, and figure out what they've done well and then how do you build upon what they've done well. Um, and continue that on because mm -hmm. stepping in and telling them what they, because we all make mistakes and we generally know the mistakes that we've made. Uh, and, or uh, I think the other thing is we forget the limitations that sometimes people are faced like Monday morning, quarterbacking a project. It's, it's our, it's every construction person's worst nightmare. For sure. But it happens every time. But it happens every time. And so it's like, and so encouraging people to say, well, did they have like, where were they at in the midst of that? Was it the beginning of the pandemic? And I, that's obviously just still a bit relevant. Was it in the middle of the the material crisis and supply chain crisis oh. that we're currently in? Like stepping back and saying, well, what what did they have to navigate? Like overall, are they better than they would than the average bear based off of everything that they had to navigate to get there? And that's the thing that I think is is like helping people on like step back and and understand that it to me is is very helpful on on like kind of getting to know people's story. Hey, where did you come from? Like kind of what you're doing here as a part of this podcast, but do the same thing as a part of everyday life, which is help, help, help me understand like, how, where's this project been? What's this been like? What's this look like? Like that to me would be anybody stepping in to a new company or a new project. Hey, how, what do you guys, what have you gone through? What challenges have you had? I, um, I've had the privilege of working for some amazing people in this space and I credit a lot of them for whatever success of whatever kind I've ever been able to have. But the advice, you know, that I try to give people when they, when they come in, I don't really value experience as much as most people simply because I feel like the way, think about this, you've been advantaged for almost four years. Mm -hmm. The way you're building data centers today are probably not the same as what you were doing a year ago, let alone four years ago. And it's going to be massively different a year or four years from now. Would you agree? Yep. So that experience, the only advantage, it, it, the only positive I feel it ever gives anybody is confidence, right? Where they're going to be more willing to ask questions, right? Have the courage to ask questions. Like, hey, I don't get that, right? But I always tell people too, like, you're going to make mistakes. So you got to be a goldfish. Like you got to put it behind you and keep moving forward. You know, you got to be a goldfish because the threats that they'll have won't come from us. It'll, you know, it'll, everything comes from outside the business. So like, don't worry about making a mistake in us playing Dr. Kevorkian with you, unless you do something that was ethically 
wrong. Other than that, this is the environment where you can make mistakes in because we will, we'll, we'll figure out what we need to work on, right? Good, now we get to understand what we need to go fix. But I always tell people, I'm like, the advice that Peter Gross gave me when I was early in my career was, be careful the toes you step on today because they could be connected to the asterisk tomorrow. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Because you lived in Silicon Valley forever and it wouldn't take long for the person that, when you were a GC, the person at Cupertino Electric could be the guy at Facebook that now you work for. That's right. And he's in remember if you staffed, you know, if you shafted him on that change order or hung him out or made his crew work wherever, you know. That's right. They just don't forget. And I was always like, like when I hired Jesse at Aligned Energy, he was coming from CPS, which is a great owner's rep firm. And and I remember saying to him, I go, hey, um, this is what I expect. The only reason why I'll ever fire you won't be from a mistake. But if you start destroying, like if you start being and flexing as an owner, because there's a lot of, oh yeah, you have a lot of power as an owner because you're writing purchase orders, right? So I'm like, you get the crown king on who gets to be the GC. So you get to make somebody's day, but then you have to go break a few hearts at the same time. So you got to stay humble. And the only reason why I'd ever fire you is not because of a mistake. It's because you, because uh, you were treating people poorly, right? And to this day, even with us now, like uh, the big thing is, is we're like, you don't, you don't go run around stomping on people because it goes back to the message that you were saying when we're driving. I mean, I don't honk at people because I make just as many mistakes on the road as anybody else. So I have no room to honk, yep. you know? Which goes back to be fair and reasonable. There it is. Right? Be fair and reasonable. So your greatest joy so far, like out of all the things you've got to do going from, I started with trying to become a concrete expert. Now you're a data center expert. What, I mean, between that gap, what's been the greatest joy that you've had in your career so far? I would, hmm. Do you enjoy building what you're doing now versus something else that you built in the past, like hospitals or? Yeah, I'm all, I mean, so national labs. I would say that that firehouse project I did in Pleasanton for the city of Pleasanton was a pretty, but I, there was a, there was a couple factors. We test driving the pole from the second story down, riding it out. We might have done that, <laughs> um, uh, but it was two factors. It was a pivotal point in my development of what does it mean to be like fair and reasonable, and that came from Randy Stewart. Um, mm. And, you know, just data, be pragmatic, like what's fair and like come and, and also come up with solutions. Don't just say, well, no, this is the way that, but come up with like, how do you be a part of that team to come up with solutions? But then also working on a project that affected a community directly, you know, being this, you know, performing arts center that kids get to go off and, you know, do theater. And, change their lives. Yeah, it could change their lives. And so kind of being something that's a bit of a, like that to me was probably as I step back and look at it, I'm like, I had a lot of fun on that job. I had a great mentor on that project very challenging. It was a hard bid job. Like, I mean, all the other things that like that, that today I'm like, oh, that just sounds miserable to have to like fight out every change order. Oof. Um, you know, cause they're trying to get back every dollar that they left on the table when they hard bid it kind of thing. And so, um, but it, but it teaches a lot about adversity and how do you navigate through it and how do you, I mean, I remember on that project getting a phone call and the president of the general contractor yelling at me, uh, and I and I remember just calmly just saying, "Hey, whenever you're ready to talk like an adult, um, you just give me a call back." But I'm going to hang up now. And <laughs> he starts losing it, like you're not going to hang up on me. And I'm just like, "Whenever you're ready, I'm more than happy to have this, this conversation with you." But I'm not a lot gonna... of emotion in these construction projects. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, just give me a call back. But just to and don't get me wrong, I was inside. I was like, <laughs> all kinds of heated. But just you know, to have those experiences and and to respond uh, well. And, you know, sometimes I don't respond well and trying to do my best to respond well. But that project was, 
yeah, just epic. But I mean, it was good for, I would say that as I look back, um, it was, it was what I needed at the time. And the same way Lawrence Livermore is what I needed at the time. Um, for my family at that point, it was what I needed for my career and my development as an individual and to sure. be fair and reasonable. And as I look now, like I can look back and, and it's not that necessarily one is grow, you know, significantly better. I've obviously had jobs I didn't enjoy and I moved on from those, those jobs. But I would say now that the, the challenge and the opportunity that's been provided to me here at Vantage has been like, it's just been, it's been happening. Well, you guys are exploding, right? So let there's only a couple more things I wanted to cover and then we'll bring it on home. But the, I guess the first of those two would be knowing what you know now, what do you see the greatest challenges in the next three years and how do you see the industry shaping or evolving? And what do you see? Like I said this on uh, a podcast with Rich Miller at Data Center Frontier where I'm like, the thing that I think is the biggest difference from like when I started was I see that the ecosystem, like the group of partners, they have an impact of picking winners, right? I think that the supply chain has the ability to to pick who wins some of these big programs because, you know, it could be Vantage and two other major players like you guys competing over the same major program in the Pacific Northwest. Right. But that manufacturer only has the ability to provide enough components or technology for one of you. Right. So whoever gets their, their equipment kind of wins those deals sometimes. And I'm saying the tail, the tail kind of wags the dog a little bit. So I'm not sure. Do you agree with that right now or? Yes and no. I don't know if I'd call it necessarily the Pacific Northwest. I'd just probably. Oh, it was arbitrary. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I'm not saying I wouldn't call it a specific region. Oh, okay. I would say it's globally. Yeah, for sure. Right. I, I, I think that the, it's not necessarily, there's the scale of the deals and the projects that are going on right now, like no one four years ago- Would have predicted this. Would have predicted how like how big they are today. Or how much bigger they'll get, right? Because now we have all these other emerging technologies. Yeah, from... or, or how much bigger they're gonna get. And and so, um, you know- Remember when six megawatts was a big project? <laughs> yeah, I remember when three megawatts was a big, I mean, it's, and so now, like with three, six megawatts, not a big deal. And so what I would say is, is that uh, I think it's a bit of being who can also be the most agile in that and how do they set up their supply chain in a way to be that, to be agile. So that's why I mean by is that we've become like as much as I, I think the pandemic really pushed us to, un, to, to better understand how global we really are and that something that happens in China or Germany right now with gas, right, directly affects all of us. Oh yeah. Right. And so I would say that it kind of goes back to, uh, it is a bit of the, that's, that's where I, I would agree with you. It is a bit of the, the tail wagging the dog in the context of the suppliers of who's going to get it or who isn't going to get it, which kind of goes back to what you and I are talking about, you know, on the right over here, which was like, treat people the same and treat them well, no matter if you have the upper hand or they have the upper hand, because you just don't like, it's just the right thing to do. And then I can easily go back and, and say, like, they're never going to have any animosity against you because you continue to treat them well um, and fair, which really means for fair and reasonable, which doesn't mean that you just get run over, right? And so it goes to this whole vendor, contractor, relationships, like all of that. Because, like, 
I understand, my teams understand, we can't do what we need to do for our customers without our vendors. And I mean that from general contractors, third-party project managers, you name it. Like, we can't do it with, you know, without them. And so back when things were slower, did, you know, did you treat them well? Did you treat them fair and reasonable? Now, right now, you know, the expectation, the hope is that it's going to be the same or they're going to, like, you know, they're going to want to work with you because they know they're going to have a higher chance of being successful working with you than they are with your competitor. And so, I yeah. agree. What I think I've seen too is there were people that took positions with their suppliers and vendors that were like, look, we're, this is it. And if you don't like it, there's 10 more companies lined up to be able to have the same opportunity. But in certain markets, there's not, right? There's one or two and all the rest are like, look, there's so much pent up demand. That, tell me why I should put 200 of my electricians on your program instead of theirs, right? right? And that's what I'm saying. I'm like, it used to be where there was always tons of people standing in line that are ready to take it in the teeth because they just want to get in the game. And now people are, I mean, you, uh, you the people that are sitting in your chair are fairly sophisticated and armed to the teeth with everything that you know that you want. It's your product and you know exactly what you want to build. Um, there's people downstream of that that are almost like, so do we, right? And we have control of the labor arbitrarily, or, you know, right. we have access to all the busway. There's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of bottlenecking. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I completely agree. I would also say that one of the other aspects of it is, is that the other thing I think that it's important for us to remember is that there are also things that, that, uh, that are internal constraints for owners. Like? Well, like, uh, call it three years ago, we wanted to build more or we wanted to go do a job, but the lease fell through. And so then we couldn't do the job. And so now it feels like that people have been strung along. Oh, right. Yeah. And so there's constraints, but it's like, well, if I don't have a job, I don't have a job and it has nothing to do with you or mm -hmm. the performance you've done, but I don't have a job. And so it's you kind of the sins of our forefathers or even things that are outside of our control, that call wasn't fair, but it's what it is. And so how do you navigate that and how do you work through that? And so, um, I think that's that's the other piece of of this, which is how do you how do you work through where now it's like oh my gosh we need everybody impossible we can which I think just kind of further plays into the aspect of you know be fair and reasonable. I mean I've heard stories of my competitors uh, dragging two general contractors along, telling them they're both going to get the job, and then they ended up not getting the lease from the Ooh. customer, and now neither of them got it, and, and not so, a little bit on their work again probably. And, and it's just like, I'm like, that just sounds where it's like, we pick the horse that put up the best team. Let's work, you know, let's work with them. And they know if, if things work well within our leases and things work well with our projects, they're going to have the job, right? Which at least now they're not now competing because then what, what, what would happen is, is let's say that other company ended up getting the lease and they have two. And it's like, okay, well, there's a real job. Now give me your true best and final to find out who's actually going to get the project. And it's like, you, you just drug them through the six month process Oof. or who knows whatever it is. And now you're going to, to your point, kick them in the teeth one last time to squeeze out every extra penny. And it's like, so you're going to get that on the, on the front end, but that doesn't necessarily mean best value and or best cost in the back end and or your next project, or especially in a market today, which is like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to want to bid that job. That's it. In and the future. There, there's no predictability, right? So right. if you're on the platform side, what you want is transparency and predictability. Like, can I rely on that group? And and by the way, I'm doing all my financial numbers. I'm, I'm 
I was waiting for you to say like the hardest part about my job is the investment committees or, you know, because those could be a bloodbath too, right? But when you keep slewing through a whole bunch of different groups and partners, then maybe sometimes you built models that you're going to do based on how much it costs to deliver that product based on this team. But now you have to use a different one. The times are changing, right? We see yeah. a lot of supply chain impact on cost. Yeah, inflation. I mean, I, I would say right now it's trying to educate the business as much as we possibly can on the on the realities of, I mean, of equipment being delayed, of- Door hardware could take 12 yeah, weeks. <laughs> which you ordered well in advance. It has nothing to do about what you ordered. You ordered it well in advance, and, and yet now you're finding out it's delayed. And so it's like, how do you help mitigate that risk? And how do you communicate that to the business? And, you know, we're really- really pushing through uncharted territory. And, and the reality is it's not just us, it's also our suppliers are also facing these uncharted territories where, you know, you name it. Hey, who had ever thought that gas and natural gas flow into Germany would have happened a year ago? <laughs> like we wouldn't have ever thought that. Sure. And so uh, to me, it's the, um, there was this book called The CEO Test that I read. And one of the biggest things that I took away from that book is it talks about, um, the people who are going to be successful are the people who can work through uh, um, ambiguity. And like, how do you navigate that ambiguity? And I think that is probably the most difficult part of, of my job is uh, I've got a group of construction people who want to go build and deliver and want to have, they want predictability. Right. Yeah. They want that because that, that's that's what they live and breathe. Yeah. And that's that that's kind of what they hang their shingle on is predictability. I'm going to provide this project on this time and I'm provide this cost and I'm going to provide this predictability. But yet we live in a world and especially especially in the developer world, you know, the data center, you know, wholesale provider world of, you know, we're working to get the project. We're working to get the lease. You know, we obviously have all these other uh, or there's always so much equipment whatever it may be. And it's like trying to balance all of that and things happen. It's all this ambiguity of, is this job going to go? Or is this job going to go? Or is that job going to go? Or are all of them going to go? <laughs> yeah. That, I remember those days vividly. And and you have multiple campuses in North America. So you're dealing with that same problem at a macro scale. Right. And I remember like, I had this conversation last week at Data Center World. I presented on, you know, the purpose, you know, what we do is we provide a lot of purpose to veterans that are transitioning. And it's because they have a, a really team mindset right or the mission or the you know the the command comes first and it's a selfless way of approaching things and i think the military does a really good job of helping create those people you've had a couple of ovita ovita candidates of ours you have uh, one of our ovita graduates on one of your programs right now and she's fantastic she came from you know the coast guard and we have people from every branch of service and i remember uh at data center world you know, one of the things I talked about, I was like, I have a background, I'm a Navy submariner person so that, you know, there's a lot of former submariners or Navy yep. nukes or whatever in this space, a lot of parapros from the Air Force. And someone was asking me a question and I said, you know what, what I have learned is the greatest people that have been the, I paint with a broad stroke here, so I'm trying to be careful, right? But I said, if I were to go back now knowing what I've learned, over having hired so many different people from every branch of service. And I think that I did what a lot of other people did, which was, I was like, yeah, I could read their resumes. I knew what a Navy Nuke was, or I knew what a Air Force Power Pro was. I go, I have learned that the best PMs I've had so far have been non-technical in the military. Um, look at my two business partners on the Overwatch side, right? They're two infantrymen. 
and I would hire more infantry before I'd hire more Navy nukes. And people were like, why? Because we, you know, we come from a technical background, so we could analyze, if I could figure out primary and secondary nuclear propulsion, I could understand a distributed redundant, you know. Uh, the reality is, is they are just so used to, they are comfortable being uncomfortable, right? And that's that whole part about, you know, thriving through amb ambiguity, I guess, but they're just so used to being in combat or something to where something bad happens. You know, Jesse always uses Mike Tyson's favorite phrase, like everyone had a plan until you get punched in the face. But that was every deployment, right? And you're talking about a guy that's been in hundreds of ticks or, you know, firefights. And I've learned that those people from the infantry that have been, their definition of mission critical was not measured in downtime, it was mortality. And when you deal with them, they just thrive in a high pressure environment. Like guys like Jesse and Anthony just kind of, they actually get better when the pressure's higher. And what they do is they learn how to always battle through and just mm -hmm. plow through those challenges and those setbacks. And then, and then having them, and you know, we have, we have a guy that runs our field team and he's exceptional. He was one of Jesse's mentors and, and he has the perfect mindset for running a team, right? That's why we one day just, I'm like, you are only in charge of the humans now because he has such a, an amazing way of engaging them and saying, listen, I understand that you're not comfortable. That's okay. That's actually good. Let me help you get more comfortable being uncomfortable, right? So you're never, we're not going to change the pressure that's around that's you, but right. we could change the way that we respond to those things. And he really focuses on coaching his people to do that. And I'm like, look, I don't do that nearly like as effectively as this guy can. Everybody has a skill set. He was gifted with that ability to communicate in a way to where, uh, I mean, you were talking about, you're like, you kind of have to change the way you engage with people, whatever their altitude and airspeed is, right? Not yours. That's right. So I'm learning that like, I would have probably not traditionally hired a lot of infantry people, right? But now I realize they measure crisis different. They respond to pressure different. And they just are so used to battling through these challenges that they don't stop, though they're sucking in the dirt, take their ball, go home. They're like, what are you talking about? We got to get through this. We're taking that hill still. You get it? Yeah. And you can't teach that mindset. Like you're not going to learn that in college as much. You're going to learn that in the field. Yeah. C completely agree. Com it's like, you. I mean, it was, I, uh, I don't try to at all equate, you know, a battlefield versus, you know, but it was kind of not much different in the context of the lessons learned in the sense that if I didn't, like, if we didn't do this project with my dad, we didn't get this project done. There was no paycheck no food yeah. there was no food yeah. right and that was not lost upon us yeah. um and so it was yeah you it, it's cold outside it's whatever it is and again it's a I completely say it's a obviously life versus being cold completely different things um and 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 get that but it does build that same context of perseverance of like you got to push through you got to figure it out that's um, the endurance the perseverance yeah. part of your time right i i I think that it's always interesting talking to people. I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of really smart folks. So understanding how they codify that, right? But I think that what I'm learning is that that trend is whatever we call it or however we label it, it's all falling in the same bucket, right? We're all looking for the same thing, which is someone that we could rely on, someone we could trust. That's right. You know, so uh, so any other big changes that you see in this space that you that you have that you're trying to kind of get around the, the corner on, trying to look around the corner on? Um. I mean, we talked a bit about how do you get in front of equipment and stuff, which I think uh, if if you're having that discussion now, you're probably too late. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if there's much value add in, in that. Um, Someone told me that if you hadn't ordered your engines, 
in January that you won't get any in 2023 or something like that. It could be that that bad. And I'm like, all right, well, that's aggressive. <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 nuts. Um, you know, I, I the interest. I think it's I, I think it still goes back to the being agile and you know, in thinking about that, even in the context of your designs or your buildings, because uh, who knows what's going to happen with computing. Um, True. You know, it, it was, you know, as you think about the designs of your buildings, can you in five, 10 years, whatever it is, which, you know, I was talking to a, a buddy of mine that I worked with at the lab um, that is working in the the autonomous vehicle space. Sure. And he's like, we're closer than people think we are. Interesting. Um, and and he's in the midst of it. And, and and so, and when you think about that, it just kind of like, holy cow, that's that's nuts. And if, um, and he's not saying that we're there next year, but he's saying five years probably, um, he, you know, is kind of where he's where he's sitting, he sees it can happen. Now, I obviously don't live in the computing world. Uh, I build the buildings that, they, that it sits in, Sure. but who knows where they're gonna be at in five. And so how does that, how does that affect our buildings and our ability to cool and power and, you know, do our buildings get smaller? Do they, you know, who knows? Um, do they become more dense? So take a look at that technology and yeah. layer on top of AI and AR and VR and drones or whoever else. And who knows, that, that, you know? Yeah. And so I think that, I think that goes back to the being agile, right? How do you, and, and the other pieces, even in the context of, of how do you persevere and how do you, don't pick up your ball. It's, it's, that's one, like you got to keep people in the game, but then you also help, help them think out of the box. What, how else can we solve this? How else can we figure this out? And that's the other piece, which is like, uh, getting people to say, don't just, don't just be like, okay, well, let's just keep on brute forcing it. Like, you know, Jocko Willick talks about in his, in his book and he, you know, they do a training where they're in a, you know, uh, an apartment building or whatever. And there's a guy with a big machine gun at the end. And he base every time somebody comes around the corner, they're, you know, they're done. And so it's like, and how many teams just keep on just, they just keep on, well, just throw more guys down the, down the corridor. They can't take them all. And it was finally, somebody realized, well, let's go outside the building, go around and take that guy out. And then you can get yeah. where you need to go. And I think that's the other thing that, you know, we want to try to be encouraging people, which, uh, which goes out of kind of something we were talking about earlier, which is like, my objective is beyond is is over there right now. As I'm looking at it, I have a waterfall. Well, I don't want to go down the waterfall. How else can I still get there? Versus just keep on sending people down that hallway, like the Jocko talks about. In yeah, you got to have people that are creative. Yeah, and, and so it. yeah, and I, so I think that it's as leaders uh, in the industry is encouraging our people and giving our people the latitude to get creative and think around it. Ask ask the dumb questions, if you will, the prodding questions, the get people thinking questions. Um, I think that's becoming more and more important, especially with the crunch. Like how else do you still deliver or how, you know, equipment's yeah. going to be like, how else do you sequence the work? You know, think out, like figure it out. Like we got to figure or it out. Or find new products. There's all kinds of things that we had to find, like. Find new products. I mean, it's, and it's not just giving up and saying, well, I've, you know, I called the one person. So I think there's that, that perseverance of saying, well, how, like, no, it's not just continuing to try to like. If you keep sending on sending people down, people down that, that hallway, they're just going to keep on getting killed. That's sure. not the right call. <laughs> I hear you. And so I think that's the other piece of which is how do we get people to be, to have that perseverance, but to have the perseverance to, to think differently, to still solve that problem versus having a lot of casualties. And in our world, talk about is you're sending more time down that hallway, you're sending more money down that hallway or whatever it is. And you just keep on throwing money down that hallway. 
you just keep on throwing money down that hallway. It's like, well, how do I get my teams? How do we get people to think uh, differently than what we've done in the past? Because to your point, I love experienced people, um, especially in the data center world. But the worst thing I, uh, or the thing I, I, I least like is when somebody says, well, this is how we've always done it. Oh, sure. And the baggage shit comes with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the, like, that to me is just the worst thing I can ever hear, um, especially today. Right. With all the challenges that we're facing right now, that is like one of the worst things I could hear. Um, now, if it follows up with, hey, this is the way we've always done it, but here's, hey, how about we try this? I'd love it. Right. All day long. Um, but that to me, I think is probably like how we have to like navigate and kind of figure out how we're going. Because the next challenge is, I think, going to be the computing piece. If it's in five years or 10 years or whatever it is, if things getting smaller, faster, um, what does it then look like for the data center world? Well, listen, we'll wrap it up. I guess my final question, like I said, I only had those two, but I kind of broke those questions into a couple of different pieces. But so what's next? I mean, like, uh, you know, you're reading books about, you know, the CEO this or something. I mean, like, did you have ambition to go do something bigger or is you just enjoying what you're doing and watching it grow and scale or? Yeah, I, I've probably been a bit more of a person that I try to keep my head down and then people say, hey, I like, you. Yeah, I like what they're doing. I like what Sam's doing. Let me keep on. Like, let's see how else we can grow and expand that. Um, uh, so I would say generally, I, I usually got, you know, earlier jobs, I get bored easily. I'm definitely not bored. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've also went, you know, director, senior director, VP, SVP. So you've had a lot of opportunities to continue to grow into those challenges as you continue to evolve and move up, right? Plus... The beauty about the space is the soup's never done cooking, right? right? So you're going to constantly, just as soon as you figured out how to master that, then the whole dynamic changes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, for me, it's, you know, let's put a title to the side. Like I had the opportunity to, um, and privilege to lead our equipment procurement team for two years. And that's now been recently rolled over into a global function, which is great. It was the best thing for our business to do. And so like having kind of that and, you know, I still have a sure. close connection with that team and it still have to do one-on-ones because they're obviously a critical portion of what we do to deliver for our sure. customers. Um, but, you know, who knows what other, you know, groups or opportunities where, like I didn't necessarily, I mean, I understood what it meant to buy equipment, but not to the degree that this team is doing it and to the scale that they're doing it, which is just epic, right? And so take, so getting to kind of dive into that has been a lot of fun. And my title, when I took that group on, my title didn't change. It was more of like, hey, take on this group. So, you know, hopefully there's some more opportunities like that within within Vantage that'll, that'll kind of- When you started, how many people did it have? There was, uh, I think I was told I was number 67. Now, how many do they have now? I think six or 700. Wow. That's a, and that's a lot of, so 10 X growth in less than four years. That's pretty explosive. Yeah. Well, listen, man, is there uh, anything that you'd like to, to leave as a final thought or a message for anybody that's listening? Any advice to anybody that's just got in the space and has a, a bunch of certifications in concrete or <laughs> like, is there, you know, you said something earlier, which will probably end up becoming like the, um, the title of this one, but you're like, don't let, the um, circumstances that you're in right now determine what you're capable of. It was something like that. I'll go back and listen to it. I'm sure when they're done producing it, but what would be your advice? Um, I think my biggest advice, I think the, and, it, and it's because it's formed me the most, which is like, don't forget you're working with people. Ooh, I like that. Like no matter if you're in data centers, no matter if you're, you know, you're at a restaurant and you got a server that's serving you, or if you've got, you're in the street, like 
don't forget you're you're working with people. Um, Maybe that should be the theme. It's it is it is by far, and I say that because you know in my personal life, uh, I've had people, and still you know we have those relationships with people that like. As I mentioned, I have my list of everybody, like of the main people who've kind of affected my life and sure. who have contributed to my life. And it's like they, you know, they had empathy uh, and patience. Yeah, patience. And, you know, and I think that that's a, that fail at it, but want to, you know, I want to continue to do well. And, and, and so as I step back and look at it, I think that's the, one of the reasons I've been able to get to where I'm at is because of, I remember I'm working with people, having empathy um, and learning as much as I possibly can kind of through this thing. And so I would say for anybody, like my advice would be, don't forget you're working with people. That's awesome advice, man. Well, listen, thanks for thanks for coming out to Austin. I'm looking forward to hanging out with you after the show. And I think we have some fun stuff planned that before we send you back to, to Denver, we'll sit down and plot out some more data center domination and... <laughs> But this has been awesome. So this is exactly what I was hoping to get out of it. So now you understand why I didn't prep you or yeah, send no, you anything. Yeah, that's been great. And uh, I'm excited for other people in the industry to get it because I think that hopefully there'll be somebody that has something of value that they can introduce to you and they just don't know how. Yeah. Maybe now someone will and now they'll they'll be able to benefit both of you, right? And your customers as well as a byproduct of that. So to that yeah. end, thanks for being here, Sam. I appreciate you making the time. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome.